right, Tom, here we are. One day removed from Christmas. It's the day after Christmas. I think we call this, at least in some parts of the world, this is Boxing Day. Um, <laughs> not for us in, in, in the U.S. And, and we don't have Fred with us because he's off celebrating Boxing Day. So that leaves us to do a mailbag podcast. I mean, sure, we could talk about some things, but, you know, it's midweek. We should talk. We should just have a general conversational episode where we just answer some questions from our listeners and we did first of all thanks to all you listeners who send in questions um we have some really good questions i think we're gonna have some fun answers um i don't know if any of these questions are gonna have us argue but um you know maybe next time you guys can learn what are the good questions to ask that uh set us off so tom are you ready yeah just uh Thanks for for listening, guys. As always, hope everyone's having a good holiday weekend. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to doing this. It's uh, it's been such a crazy busy year. Thinking like five or ten years ago, like there would be weeks and sometimes months with no real boxing. This year, it's been like so crazy. Just every week, it's nice to get to cover some like kind of non-topical subjects. Like uh, I think we previewed the Davis Gamboa event reasonably well, so now we get to have a little fun uh, with some of these topics we would never get to on a normal podcast. Yeah, and it's going to range from, uh, we're going to talk about some historical stuff, we will talk about current fighters, we will talk about um, strategy for certain networks, and all sorts of things. So, let's start with the first question, and um, this is a subject that we don't usually talk about. How do you guys feel about ranking Sugar Ray Robinson, etc., so I'm assuming he means other fighters, uh, how do you feel about ranking... Uh, how do you feel about guys ranking Sugar Ray Robinson as the GOAT or pound for pound number one? Limited film available, bad competition in many cases. Is it just a historian or for some people a hipster thing to be talking about Sugar Ray Robinson or Willie Pap or whoever as a GOAT? <laughs> Nicolino Loche. There you uh, go. That's the, that's the flavor Lopez, of the month. Salvador Sanchez for, for some like real super hipsters. Um, you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> my my honest first reaction was I don't I could not give less of a shit about this. And that's not to say it's a bad question, but it's I feel like it's kind of the mission statement of Sunday Puncher and like Reddit boxing to focus on contemporary boxing because there's just such a pervasive attitude among boxing fans to you know, sort of a grass is the grass is always greener. Uh, to focus on on past eras and automatically default to them being better. So yeah, I mean, um, the other sort of easy answer is it's just it's hard to compare eras. There are so many differences, but um, it it is just interesting. I mean, I I think you know, as far as someone like Sugar Ray Robinson, like the argument for him being like the the easy answer for greatest of all time, it's like you know crazy volume of fights, totally incomparable to fights uh, fighters' careers now. Also you know, longer fights, 15 round championship fights. So that, that's always interesting just because, um, you know, you talk about fighters like Jorge Linares or to some extent, Andy Lee, who can, uh, or Amir Khan, certainly who barely have the durability to get through, <laughs> you know, a handful of rounds sometimes, let alone 12 rounds or 15 rounds. I mean, uh, think of the, the, the handful of fights Jorge Linares has had where just like gets to be about round eight or nine and his body just is like, no, I'm done. <laughs> you know, whether it's from a body shot, cuts, headshots, just can't hang in there. So it's it's crazy to think of these fighters having 15 round championship fights and fighting sometimes, 
you know, 20 times a year. I was just going through Sugar Ray Robinson's box rec, and it's just crazy. Um, I mean, the easy answer is against. It's the stuff the guys mentioned. I mean, you know, very spotty competition. Sometimes in the middle of his career, Sugar Ray Robinson fighting guys with 30 losses. Uh, limited film, so it's hard to tell how good these actually guys actually are. I mean, people like Willie Pep, where there's no film. Um, you know, lack of modern training, uh, and diet. I mean, just think that these guys can't possibly be as well conditioned as modern athletes. And that's, you know, <laughs> avoiding the topic of skill boosters, uh, as Fred sometimes calls them completely. Um, it's sort of like, I mean, just the, the two sports are just so different. I mean, it's really comparing boxing from like the fifties and earlier to now is almost like comparing the amateurs to the pros today. I mean, it's, it's really just very different. Um, I don't know, you have any further thoughts on this topic? Well, I mean, so the question was mainly phrased about like the people who do it, because I, I, if you ask me like, who's a pound for pound greatest fighter of all time, I'm going to say, I don't know. And it's not a cop out. It's just, I, I, I'm, my approach is that in order for me to speak on a fighter, to speak on a division and speak on the, on the sport as a whole, I'm going to need a lot of information. I'm going to need context. I'm going to need to know why certain wins were significant. I need to know when it when I when it comes to assessing Canelo's 2019 for example, I need to know, well where was Danny Jacobs? Because I understand by looking at his record a, a bit about who Danny Jacobs is as, as a fighter. Same with Sergey Kovalev. If I look at his record, that tells me one side of the story, but I also need to know the context. Who have these guys beat and how good were those guys to in order to properly assess what Canelo's achieved this year. And and I feel like that's not novel. I think you as a listener and certainly you, Tom, like you would agree with that. You know, if I ask you, uh, you know, about Javier Maciel, you would say like, I, I really can't speak on him. I know I could go on box rec and give you like <laughs> sort of an opinion, but I, I'm really not going to, going to, going to speak on him. And so it's the same thing uh, with this. I, I can't speak on Sugar Ray Robinson or Willie Pep because, you know, I wasn't born back then. And um, even with like a guy like Ray Leonard, I was not born back then. So I feel like a part of the people who like are adamant about some these guys that with no film exists, you know, the Harry Greb is another one. And it's like, to me, it's like a pretentious answer. It's people because... When you answer who's pound for pound number one, it, it kind of turns into like you communicating to people like what you know about the sport and where your preferences lie and what you appreciate. And, and so those are loaded questions like, you know, who's your favorite fighter? Who's the, the greatest fighter of all time? They're loaded questions where somebody can get a view on who you are as a boxing fan. And I feel like Harry Greb, um, Sugar Ray Robinson, those are the, the kind of answers that you use to impress somebody, but not necessarily they're not indicative of you actually knowing what you're talking about. Um, and I would never say somebody that long ago, like if you ask me who's the greatest baseball player of all time, I'm not going to say Babe Ruth. I, I didn't I, I didn't see him play. And furthermore, do I think Babe Ruth could hit Aroldis' Chapman's fastball? I don't know. I don't think Babe Ruth could hit a fastball that was coming at 102 miles an hour. Guys didn't throw that hard back then. So that kind of points to your whole, it's hard to compare eras because things change, you know, uh, the science behind sports nutrition and, and all this stuff. It's, it's so different. So it's a difficult question. And like, I, I don't know, I'm, I don't like the answer of Sugar Ray Robinson or Willie Pep. Like it, to me, it's kind of a cop out. 
um, in terms of like, well, I'm just going to pick who other people say, or you're being pretentious. I don't know. Hipsters, one way to put it. Um, next question. This one much, you know, we went from one end all the way to the other. In what ways has Tank's fan base been developed so effectively? Interestingly worded question here. In what ways has Tank's fan base been developed so effectively amongst non-boxing fans? So, I mean, at this point, Javante Davis is catching on. But I think hardcore boxing fans would sleep on Javante Davis' popularity. And that's because... He's not making a ton of boxing fans fans of him. He's making non-boxing fans fans of him. And I think Ryan Garcia is in the same boat where he's, well, at least appears to be getting popular with people who don't necessarily follow boxing, but instead they follow, in, in this case, Javante Davis versus the sport. You know, you ask them about Demetrius Andrade and they're going to say, who? So um, I think... One way that they've done this is that he's certainly gotten a lot of endorsements from popular figures, familiar faces that, you know, non-boxing fans and boxing fans alike would know of. So when you have a celebrity like Drake or Pusha T coming to your fight and talking about you or tweeting you or having you in their story on Instagram, there are a lot of people who won't necessarily um, follow boxing and know who a boxer is. But because of that connection, they get interested um, it's, it's, it's kind of like you're lending your credibility over to Gervonta. Um, the other thing to consider is with social media, Gervonta's done a very good job. I don't know if you've ever followed his social media, but for the most part, Gervonta kind of embraces this new, like anyone can get it on social media. Like the dude is willing to just say whatever he wants on social media and not like in an irresponsible way, but it's, it's interesting at least. Um, Javante does have a charisma about him. I don't think there's anything spectacular about Javante Davis. Um, you know, he's not going to do a, a wilder promo or anything like that, but there's just something charismatic about him. The dude is totally comfortable in his shoes and, um, you know, the guy's got an infectious smile. I mean, at the end of the day, what, what was Sugar Ray Leonard's, uh, what did he have that allowed him to connect with fans? Well, it was a smile. Same with Floyd, same with Oscar. You can smile, people feel safe around you. And I think Gervonta has that. Do you have anything else that you would add there? No, not really. I I, I really I've thought about this a lot, you know, separately from the mailbag question, because it is interesting. Like, um, I mean, his popularity has just grown so organically. I mean, just a few things I would add of sort of traditional boxing stuff. I mean, he has the type of, you know, speed and power you can't teach. And he was so good from such a young age. I mean, he just turned 25 now. He's the type of guy who is, he's basically been good every time you tune in. You know, he's someone who you don't need to, um, have pushed on you. You know, you watch him fight once and he looks like a star. I just, the reason I think of this, I've been watching a bunch of Gamboa fights this week, making highlights. And like, I, I, I forgot how heavy HBO cell was on him. And oh my like, God, yeah. Tank is the guy that they were always trying to push Gamboa to be. I mean, Gamboa always looked sensational, sensational and highlight clips. And, you know, he would have a few sporadic moments, but he was always so inconsistent. And I mean, yeah. Tank is that guy, you know, it's like the sales pitch on Gamboa is true in tank. And yeah, I, um, I think that, I'm just point. the last note about him being so young. I mean, it's something which comes up with, uh, uh, Ryan Garcia as well. Like every generation needs their guy 
you know, if you're always going to have a different emotional connection to the people that you're fans of when you're a teenager, to some extent in your early 20s as well. So, I mean, I think there's a younger generation coming up that does make a connection with these younger fighters. I mean, that was something like when Oscar De La Hoya came up. I mean, he had this huge uh, young fan base that, you know, really entered the sport with him that hadn't been in the sport prior to that. And I think Davis is well matched to that. You know, like you talked about his, you know, big social media following, his other, you know, I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, influencers that are fans of him. I don't, I don't know if you'd really call Drake that, but, you know, these other people who have big followings who are fans of him, you know, I think that sort of, there's sort of a synergistic relationship there where he gets a rub off them, they get a rub off him, and, um, you know, rising tide raises all ships. Yeah, I, that's as much as I have to say about it, though. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting, like, um, the, the, the parallels between... Uh, it, and it's even hard to even say parallels because it's not quite that, but the way HBO really wanted uh, Gamboa to basically be what Gervonta is looking like so far. I just remember those early... Gamboa fights where it seemed like Gamboa just would lose interest in the fight for a few rounds and then he would do something and then like he finishes the fight and that's what you're left with but Gamboa had his moments where it's like dude are, do you care um now this is th- this this question actually leads into um the next one because um Gamboa for me is one of those guys that like early on like I I, I latched onto um at least in my second run um, but this is a two-part question. How long have you been watching boxing for, and have you ever spent significant time away from it? For me personally, this is the question still. For me personally, I found boxing to be the most difficult sport to be a fan of for a variety of reasons, and I think the boxing that boxing in general does not lend itself to fan retention. Any thoughts on this? Cheers, as always. So I'll let you go first. Sure. So just right off the bat, I don't really, I mean, the thing about the, you know, boxing is a difficult sport to follow. It's hard for fan retention. That part I don't really follow. So if you, you know, get that, or if you want to cover that first, otherwise I can definitely answer the other part of it. Okay. Um, so I can see how boxing does not lend itself to fan retention. And, um, so here's, there's a distinction to make because when we talk about a fan being retained, it, it, there's two types. So a fan means somebody who already likes boxing. And, and in my estimation, people who like boxing don't go away from the sport um, very frequently. Like boxing is a sport where even if you go away, you will still keep track of the big fighters. So you're st- so you're still at this point in time, Mayweather, Pacquiao, you're still going to at least be knowledgeable of what they're, they're doing. Um, as a casual observer, though, I can totally understand if you are able, you lose sight of the sport of boxing. Um, but boxing is one of those sports where once you're bit by the bug, you're stuck, you know, cause there's no other sport like it. And I would even assert that the UFC doesn't bring along with it all the quirks for better or worse that boxing does. Um, you know, bad decisions, stupid promotional moves. That's part of the, the charm that boxing has. And whether you disagree with that or agree with it or not, I don't care, but that's part of what makes boxing so fascinating is the fact that we could have these sort of businessy conversations and we don't sound like idiots because it, um, sometimes the people running the sport are just as dumb as you and me. So, <laughs> so um, I, I think, I, but I can definitely see where the argument comes from where you say like boxing does not lend itself to the fan retention. I think being a hardcore fan is difficult 
but and especially back in the day. But in terms of being the casual observer, I think boxing, once you get hooked by boxing, you're stuck. Yeah, that was that's the one thing where I wanted to respond about that because I can see where it's hard to get in. There's a, you know there was a lot when I got into boxing that I had to learn about it to be able to enjoy the sport. But yeah, it's like once I was in, once I, I sort of passed that um, barrier to entry, um, I, I felt like it wasn't a problem to retain me. But besides that, um, do you have more to say about that, or otherwise I can answer the other part? No, of the you question. answer the other part. Yeah. So then the other part of the question was about you know when did we get into boxing. Um, and have we ever gotten away from the sport? I thought that this is a fun thing to think back on. So I, I, I jotted down some notes thinking about this. So, um, I got bit hard by the boxing bug in it's very specific. I, I, I was checking back on box rec to figure out the dates. So it was the fall of 2003. Um, then I, I took a bit of a hiatus from about 2009 to 2013. And then I, I got hooked back and I have been since uh, that time at the beginning of 2013. So the reasons I got hooked originally, um, so I'd always been generally interested in the sport. Like if I was flipping through the channels and I'd see something on ESPN or HBO, but I never really got it and got into it. You know, talking about like when I was in high school, sometimes I'd see boxing, but didn't really get into it. So when I was in college, that was in like that, that 23, 2003 neighborhood. Um, I happened to see Diego Corrales versus Joel Casmayor one. I think the easy answer would be a Corrales Castillo, but it was Diego Corrales, Joel Casmayor one. And I just like got so into this fight, just watching it live. Like it, uh, Casmayor was ahead. Then Corrales was coming on. It was a really good fight, high skill level fight. And then Casmayor, to anyone who has never seen this fight, broke Diego Corrales' mouth guard. Part of the mouth guard went through Corrales' mouth. So he literally had a hole in his mouth. And blood was gushing out of it. Uh, Margaret Goodman, now of Vada, uh, stopped the fight because she said uh, he was aspirating blood. He was going to choke on his own blood. And meanwhile, Diego Corrales is pleading with her to let the fight continue on. And... I don't know what it was about that. I was trying to tell this to my wife tonight while we were eating dinner, and she was just disgusted by this. I mean, she likes boxing, but she didn't get why that would be appealing. But for whatever reason, I was just, I was hooked. I was instantly a fan of Diego Corrales. Uh, right around that time, that was the, that corresponded with the rise of Manny Pacquiao. That was right around the time he had his first fights with Marco Antonio Barrera and Juan Manuel Marquez. And also, I'll, I'll admit this, although uh, Angelo might be embarrassed on my behalf, I also got into Hajime no Ippo, the anime, which, it, besides just being good, is a, just a legitimately very good primer on the sport. There's, there's a lot of stuff that it explained about the sport that was really helpful for me to just understand the basics, the technical stuff. Yeah, it's, it's an anime for, for those of you who don't know what it is, but, uh, and that might seem silly, but it, it was just very helpful to learn the basics. And then just from watching real boxing, I was able to, to pick up from there. Um, wh what about you? Let's go piece by piece. Like, what got you into the sport originally? Um, so I did not have a choice, really, um, with boxing. So when I grew up, we had a black box, which means that if you're, you know, if you're like under the age of maybe 25, um, a black box was basically cable um, that was somehow descrambled or something. So you basically got all the pay-per-view channels and all the movie channels for free. So uh, it was illegal. And so, but with that, I got to see all the, the big boxing events. So Tyson... Um, I like vividly remember like actually 
I was a fan of UFC before I was a fan of boxing because when in the early days of UFC, I thought it was the coolest thing that some ninja dude was in <laughs> the ring hilarious. with like, but I mean, I, I remember loving the concept of UFC and then every time a fight would go on, I would just drift and go play with my toys or something. Um, but it started that way where everyone would come over to the house to watch Oscar De La Hoya fight. And, um, I would be in the room and I, I would, I maybe sometimes wouldn't even pay attention to the fight, but I would at least be there. So that's really how it started is like watching all the pay-per-views. And I remember the first fight that I actually got invested in was the, um, Mosley De La Hoya fight. Everyone in my family, obviously Hispanic going for, um, De La Hoya and I being the pretentious hipster, um, that I was <laughs> did not like that Oscar De La Hoya looked like, um, pr- a pretty boy. So I backed Shane Mosley and was very righteous in my choice when, uh, Mosley won twice. Um, and that's, and that's kind of how it was. And then after the black box thing went out, so everybody would go to each other's houses for, for all the pay-per-views. So I remember seeing a ton of pay-per-views growing up as a kid. And then from maybe 2000, maybe when I got into high school, 2000, basically during the Manny Pacquiao run, um, I was kind of out. No, no, actually, no, not during Manny Pacquiao's run. So maybe um, early 2000s, I stopped uh, really following that closely. And all I knew about was Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather. I knew a little bit about Ricky Hatton. I knew Bernard Hopkins. And then uh, when Pacquiao fought Hatton, I believe it was, it might've been Hatton. That's when I started to pay a little closer attention. I, I, I Up to that point, it was just like, oh, if it popped up on ESPN, cool. And if not, I didn't really follow. And then I started to watch more by 2009, I would assume. No, eight, seven, something like that. Um, I started to watch it again, and when Sergio Martinez and Paul Williams fought the first time, that's when I was like, "All right, well, I'm, I'm all in now." And that's uh, now here I am. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, so that was the period when I went on a hiatus for whatever reason. I, you know, it might have just been because I was so into it for so long. Right around 2009, I just, I don't know, I, I, I just fell out of it. I mean, the, the few quick, uh, I'll be quicker on this bit, but like. It's really frustrating with the 2008 Olympics because, like, the 2000, uh, the Olympics at that point was that was the height of the like the touch scoring, the horrible system where they had multiple judges and they had to push a button at the same time to score a punch, yeah. and then that you know, and if you, I was just looking back. I mean, the 2008 Olympic class was just abysmal in terms of pro significance. I mean, you have people like Wilder, who is a bronze medalist who went on to be successful, Lomachenko. Uh, stayed on for one more Olympics, but didn't turn pro right then. But really, just if you look up and down the medals, there was almost no one who went on to do anything. I mean, Zhu Shiming, that was in those Olympics. Uh, well, for Haiti, so that's but consider that a success. Of, uh, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> well, there were other people who weren't at the Olympics, but I mean, just saying in terms of the gold. So anyway, that was, you know, it's to me part of the sport is always. It's like who are the current superstars? Who are the current world champions? Um, and who are the up and comers, the next generation. And it's just at that point, it was so, that was deflating. Um, Pacquiao didn't seem to have too many interesting opponents after fighting Cotto. Um, those events were just boring to me. Um, Mayweather was fighting like once a year and, you know, he was always saying he was retiring. So that was hard to follow for me. And Vlad was presiding over the heavyweight division. That was, you know, a few years removed from his prior most recent knockout loss at that point so um it was just i don't know sport just seemed boring you had the three big stars mayweather pacquiao and Cotto. 
uh, excuse me, Mayweather, Pacquiao, and Vlad, who you know just looked like they weren't going to win, lose anytime soon, and didn't really have a lot of interesting opponents. Mayweather and Pacquiao weren't fighting each other. I just kind of drifted away. HBO was pushing Amir Khan at that time. I couldn't Ooh, have cared less. Boy, I remember that. That yeah, Marco Antonio Barrero debut. That is the exact one I was thinking of, where I was just then like, the I can't Malignaggi believe they're pushing fight. this. Yeah. Um, those, ah, uh, man, I, I, I remember wanting Khan to win, because I, I could not stand Pauly. I actually probably still can't stand Pauly. Uh, hot take from the time. I loved Vladimir Klitschko and Vitaly Klitschko's run, and I actually hate when people say that the heavyweight division sucked and blah, 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 and those guys sucked the life out of it. They knocked everyone out. Like, what more do you want? Uh, I don't know. I Now, okay, so just very quick on that. Uh, I've never discussed this podcast, but I went to see Vladimir Klitschko against Samuel Peter, which is one of the weirdest fights no one ever talks about. Um, Samuel Peter knocked down Vladimir Klitschko multiple times. There were a million rabbit punches. Uh, The final scores were 114-111 on all three cards in favor of Klitschko, which is just weird scorecards. Yeah, just, I don't know. I... um, I just, I didn't love it. Like, he had been knocked out already uh, twice at that point, uh, which was enough to see, you know, just make it seem like his, or excuse me, three times at that point, which was enough to make it seem like he just overall was not a very high quality operator. Uh, and then, you know, that was when he started to enter into his era of hugging. I, I mean, it's just, uh, did not, did not love it. Um, I mean, it didn't help. Again, there were no great B-sides. I mean, that's something people really take for granted. I mean, I don't know if people take for granted or not. I think a lot of people say it's amazing. But I mean, just having, you know, AJ Ruiz now, Wilder and Fury. I mean, it's just having a multi-headed heavyweight division is just so fantastic. As opposed to then where it sort of seemed like Vlad, who because he had gotten knocked out, seemed like he was garbage by a historical context. Uh, and then with no interesting names that looked like they could challenge him. It just, I couldn't have cared less about the division. Um, yeah, very quick. And then to move on, I got back into the sport in 2013, which uh, coincided with Pat getting knocked out the prior fall, which was kind of fun because it made it seem like the next generation was rising. Um, the class of 2012 to me was much more exciting than the class of 2008. That was Lomachenko and Spence were the two guys I was most excited about then, Joshua, which is kind of ironic now. But uh, Joshua, Joshua came out of the Olympics. He, yeah, he was. He wasn't on my radar screen immediately. Um but um, I remember just that year when I got back into it, I got really excited about Lomachenko Salido, then Lomachenko Russell, um, Gar- Garcia Matisse was that year, Mayweather Canelo was that year, uh, Broner Maidana. I mean, just just a lot. And then, you know, that was Showtime's year was unbelievable. And you guys like Danny what Garcia were rising. What are those fights Keith that you Thurman. had in common? You mentioned four specific fights right now. Um, what do they all have in common? Uh, you tell me. I mentioned five actually, but uh, they I'm were all on Showtime. Five, um, or, four of no, the four of the five. five but um, Al Heyman guys in four of those five fights. Well, yeah, that was going to be my final capper. So a lot of this <laughs> ended up being kind of the precursor to the PBC. You know what was the incarnation then of Al Heyman advised guys with Golden Boy, um, which kind of set the stage for you know. Tom Damn. Cody PBC shell, but so you, it's you like never got the the Golden Boy versus Top Rank stuff. You came in right at the end of it. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, I mean, it was weird because of the like. 
I when I got out of the sport, I mean, Top Rank was always just kind of like the house promoter for HBO, and Golden Boy was kind of just Oscar De La Hoya's promoter and then Floyd Mayweather's promoter. So you know, then I came back in, and it's like, oh, who's this gigantic stable that's so interesting? But yeah, I, is there anywhere to say about Top Rank versus HBO from that or Top Rank versus Golden Boy from that era? Uh, it was just as bad right now. Uh, it was just as bad then as it is now. Um, just the uh, the back and forth and stuff. It it was it was like just your typical boxing like uh, two sides or two yeah the two sides like um, it like was a just, company sniping at each other. Yeah, it's just it, I, I guess the point is the whole um, ESPN shills versus the PBC shills versus the Matchroom shills like that's not that's not new. Um, and back then though it was more centered around Mayweather versus Pacquiao, and then everything else kind of branched from there. Versus now, it's more of a network uh, promotional battle, and then everything goes down from there. But back then, the the two fighters, obviously Mayweather and Pacquiao, took the center stage. Um, let's move on. Yes. Okay, seeing pictures of the Las Vegas football stadium, is there any possibility we see any fighters face off there in 2020? So if you don't know what he's talking about, the, the Raiders are moving to Las Vegas next year. And they've built a brand new football stadium for these guys uh, on the Las Vegas Strip. So the question is, will we see any fighters fight at the uh, the new, it's called Allegiant Stadium uh, in 2020? What's your thoughts? So I know nothing about this. So, so right back to you. Okay. So I think looking at the, the stadium, looking at the schedule and everything, there's not going to be a fight there in 2020. Um, obviously... You would want to do a fight in a football stadium, and we've had it before. You know, the UK famous for doing uh, fights in stadiums, and we just had one with Spence Garcia at Cowboy Stadium, and the new stadium is nowhere near as big as Cowboy Stadium. But I think 2021 is probably the earliest that we're going to see a fight uh, happen at Allegiant Stadium. Like, it's possible that Wilder or Fury would, uh, or Joshua, some combination of those, but obviously Wilder has to be involved. Um, they, they would possibly be the ones to fight in the stadium, but I don't think it's going to happen next year for scheduling reasons, as well as for the fact that I just don't see Wilder or Fury fighting Joshua within the next 12 months. Um, the other thing that, um, is going to be interesting about the stadium is it's owned or I don't know if it's owned, but like operated by AEG who has a staple center, who's got, uh, the dignity health sports park, uh, they do some work with MGM, um, but they're like the connected with Allegiant Stadium, and so they're everyone's got relationships with AEG. AEG famously um, one of the early investors of Golden Boy. Um, the as far as any casinos connected with the stadium, it looks like Caesars is connected. They're one of the founding partners, um, but Caesars hasn't really done any boxing in a while, so it'll be interesting to see if and when we do get a fight at the stadium. The other thing to consider is that the Ram Stadium is going to be opening soon, and that would also be in the running to have... Um... Anyway, moving on. I can... Yeah, just very quick. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... Yeah, I think the connection to the casino would be the key question, right? Because, I mean, that, that's the primary reason. For... I, I I don't know. I mean, the, the Thomas and Mack Center, I know Top Rank sometimes used to do fights there, but it's they're, like... Uh, uh, yeah. In the last few years, they're like the only person that's uh or sorry not the only person they're the only promoter that's really doing fights at uh, thomas and mac now thomas and mac also associated with unlv unlv will be playing at allegiant stadium as well 
yeah so anyway to me it, it doesn't really make sense but that's based on almost you know yeah just purely for that reason of it you know the main draw jimmy. of doing stuff in las vegas is an association with casinos jimmy's having a very merry christmas or very merry boxing day excuse me uh next question um first guess who wrote this and second i'll read the question why is in a way so shit <laughs> i don't know i don't know who hates in a way uh in the chat uh do you know who or is it uh, have you not been following fred's twitter uh no so okay i'm assuming he's <laughs> riled a lot of people up by his take that in a way is not very good so i, I you need, to, defend I need to in a way catch up on fred's tweets um yeah sure why not i'll take the devil's advocate um yeah i i think in a way is a very good fighter um i think just we in the sunday puncher group get annoyed by the people who absurdly overrate him um you know and, and just i mean it's gonna get even worse now that he's with top rank um <laughs> or i don't know maybe now those hipsters will need to find someone more obscure to latch on to but yeah I, I think he's a very good fighter i i think it's just as far as why is he so so shit i think he's just overrated because of the limited number of fighters in his division and that the divisions he fights in are essentially regional and you know not active in the united states so um that's as much as i have to say about why is in a way so shit well i mean that's that's a very tame answer um, here, here's here's the thing about Inouye. Okay, I I personally really like Inouye. I've liked him and stand him for a very long time. But here is the thing about Inouye. So I feel like a lot of the people who are now putting over Inouye, and there are certainly you know a vocal uh, group of the of people out there who are doing this, but a lot of them are seemingly forgetting about the fact that Inouye's already fought in America and the takeaway from people like me, you can go back and listen to the podcast. We're having to make excuses for Inouye when he made his American debut. Cause he did not, he, he did not perform well. He chased around and failed to cut off the ring on a fighter. And ultimately he did manage to get a stoppage, but it was like, Hey, this guy was supposed to be the monster. This was supposed to be a big deal. They're moving towards this, um, Roman Gonzalez fight, and Roman Gonzalez was around pound for pound number one at that time, although despite losing to um, Rungvisai, and then also on that night, Rungvisai slept him, and I think in the mix of that, I people forgot about what happened to Inoue that night, and so I came out here, I tried to make excuses for Inoue, and the reality is, and Andre Ward, he laid this out beautifully um, during the fight, he talked about Inoue's defense and how he really didn't have defense. He wasn't very good defensively because all he really did, he, he, he defended like a fencer where his main defense was to step back, to use his reflexes and just get out of range. But like there was no like craft to his defense. And in the Donaire fight, I think we saw that like Inoue's defense isn't very good. And so... That is a, a huge shortcoming for him um, going forward because he's he's fighting now in a division where he's not the biggest guy um, out there. You know, he was able to get through and, and pummel guys at at 108, at uh, what, or actually 105, 108. Um, no, no, sorry, 108, 115, and now 18. Uh, now at 118, he's kind of like yeah, he's an average size guy. And he does have power. He is fast. But, like, I, I wouldn't say that he's shit. 
but I I think it's time to bring him down back down to earth. You know, Lomachenko got that moment when he lost to Salido, and you kind of saw like, okay, Lomachenko is a fantastic uh, talent, and there's a ton to be excited about. However, there are still some areas where you know he's going to look human. And um, he's going to have to develop over time. And in a way so far, has just rolled through everybody he's faced and hasn't really faced that sort of um, resistance. And once Donaire provided it, I mean, in a way, almost got himself knocked out in that fight. So he's not shit, but I do think that in a way is human. And I, I, I certainly wouldn't put him at the top of any pound for pound list. You don't get to go life and death with a 30-something-year-old um, guy who's moved up in weight from, I don't know, 115 all the way to 130 and back down um, and who's been beat multiple times. You don't get to go life and death with that guy and still be considered the best fighter on the planet. I mean, it's just, it's, I'm not doing it. Um, anyway, next question. Do you think there will be a PBC up front for 2020? Uh, it's looking like... Uh... Probably not just because they've announced so many fights already, but it is interesting because, uh, you know, they've announced like the first wave through um, February, at least. I'm trying to think if they've announced any March fights yet, but um, yeah, there, you know, some major pieces are yet to fall into place. We don't know what's happening with Pacquiao yet. We don't know what's happening with Spence yet. There's a chance they're facing each other. Who knows? But they're facing um, each other. In ex- yeah, I know you, you've 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 put money down there, but um, uh, Fury Wilder inexplicably has not been announced yet, which is very hard to understand. The the, the Athletic put out a piece which um, seemed to to say that that was going to be purely an ESPN show, which is very confusing. So, um, but yeah, I, I think if we are going to see something, it could it would be an you know, maybe February or something to announce the rest of the year, you know, uh, we'll see. But I, I think another piece of that, and I think we'll talk about it more later, is the relationship between Fox and Showtime um, as it relates to the PBC. Because, you know, uh, two years ago, we had a Showtime up front for the PBC. Last year, we had a Fox up front for the PBC. If they were going to do one this year, would they have to do a joint one? Would that be a problem for the people involved? So um, I don't know your thoughts on this topic. I mean, I don't really have much to add outside of what you said because I think um, I generally had the same ideas. Um, and yeah, the two network thing for the upfront was interesting to me because um, somebody's got to front the cost of flying all the fighters out and and doing the production and having the press conference or whatever. I'm not so sure if either ne- uh, network would be able to come to some agreement or they make PBC do it all together. And I'm not sure PBC is willing to spend the money for in upfront, which I don't really think solves that much. I mean, how did it work for ESPN and their upfront, their little mini upfront they did when they announced like four or five fights? I don't think it really got the traction um, that they hoped for. And I have the ratings to back it up that it may not have been that successful. So as a boxing fan, it's nice to get five or six new fights announced and have a ton to talk about. But I don't necessarily think it's the biggest deal. Um, so I'm, I don't think there will be an upfront for 2020. Um, should we move on? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Question. Would boxing be better if the only divisions below featherweight were bantamweight and flyweight? And why would the answer 
BS. <laughs> when I originally read this question, I thought it just uh, meant, would it be better if there were no divisions below bantamweight? Basically, same, a bantamweight same here. Same here. were the minimum weight. But it's funny to see, oh, feather flyweight as well. So I guess they just mean reducing the halfweight divisions. Yeah, I mean, those weight classes are just silly. I mean, they are, in terms of percentage body weight, the closest together um, of any in the sport. So it does seem a little cluttered. Um, and also, like, like I was saying with the, the, the Inouye question, it's like, you know, the, the, those weight classes basically don't exist in the United States. I mean, um, I say that I actually saw my first atom weight fight um, <laughs> on the, the prelims. What was that 102? Uh, Hold on, the reception's crazy right now. But, you know, in the United States, they aren't really that useful. Um, so, did you mention the whole fact that they're popular in Asia? Your reception cut out, yeah, so I yeah. don't know. Okay. So, oh, I think... Uh, okay. I, I, I yes. think... That, but the idea is that these divisions are popular in Asia, so therefore they're, you know, worthwhile. That's that's your premise that you're you're going off of. Oh, sorry, I don't know. Are, um, should I just say it again? I don't know if it got picked up on the podcast. Are, are um, we like redoing this part? But I don't really yeah. want to. But sure. Uh, boy, this is great listening for for anyone out there. Okay, um, yeah, just quick bullet points. Um, those weight classes. There are too many weight classes. I agree with the premise of the question. Percentage weight wise, they are the closest together of any in the sport. Um, they don't really exist in the United States anywhere, so so that doesn't really matter. Um, and uh, but they they do exist in Asia, where the average size person is smaller, so they do serve a purpose. So it's sort of like you know, it's not bothering anyone. Don't worry about it. They don't really exist in the United States anyway. Um, so I I think that the whole they're popular in Asia thing is something that non Asians tend to say. And um, I don't know that it's true. I also don't know that it's not true, but I hear it being said a lot. And when I look at like boxing overseas, it doesn't appear like these guys who we think are gigantic stars are actually that. You know, I, I'm not sure that Rungvisai was like wilder in Thailand. And so I, I don't know that th- these divisions, like how much money that they actually generate. And even like if we were to put like a like um some sort of currency or not currency but like inflation percentage so that they were normalized, um I don't know that they're like grossing a, a ton of money. What I will say is that I think it's a pretty novel idea, and if like that became the rule, I wouldn't be upset by it. I would say oh, okay, this is worth trying. Um, and here's here's the the other part, like how much of the boxing world pays attention, like what percentage of uh interest do those divisions get? Of all, like, like if we say, like, okay, every division gets either zero or hundred percent attention. Obviously, you know, you have a division like welterweight that gets probably close to one hundred percent attention from boxing fans. Well, how much? And this is worldwide, all boxing fans of the world. How much uh, interest are those lower weight classes getting? And would it be the lowest in all of boxing? I would say this is probably the lowest outside of cruiserweight. So if we got rid of rid of those divisions, you know. I don't know. Fine. I don't think anybody would really be hurt by it. (laughs) 
Well, the sanctioning bodies would be hurt because they would have fewer divisions to uh, get sanctioning for on their belts. But yeah, anyway, I'm ready to move on. All right. What is your honest feeling about the current relationship between Showtime and PBC? Uh, honest, just as my hunch, uh, not great. <laughs> and I base that purely off of Steven Espinosa's body language. Um, yeah, I, I, I think like I've said this before, like we like Steven Espinosa. I've interviewed him before. Um, frequently we'll stick up on him. I stick up for him on Twitter when people are just being absolute idiots, uh, and saying things which don't make any sense. But, um, I mean, there's no question the quality of Showtime's output has not been that great this year, uh, certainly in comparison with Fox. I mean, some of the stupid things people criticized about Wild Ortiz, I don't think that really matters that much. Like, uh, Mike Coventer really went in saying if they don't get the fight, that's the end of Showtime boxing or, you know, just some stupid things. I think the Fistianatos guy was saying that as well. But, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it really just feel like it feels like they're getting the leftovers or having to foot the bill for fighters who have high guarantees. I mean, stuff like, you know, having to broadcast multiple Robert Easter Jr. fights where he probably got paid quite well. And, you know, the fights were actually the, the Adrian Granados fight was good. But, you know, the Francis Bartholomew fight was terrible. But anyway, um, I mean, do you have a take on that? I mean, do you, do you think it's as shaky as I do or no? I, I think, and this is also if you did, um, so Espinoza actually just did an interview with, um, he did it on the PBC podcast, which I would recommend the podcast. I think they're, they're more fair about the sport of boxing than most podcasts out there, which I'm actually pretty shocked by. I thought it would be like basically PR for PBC, but it's really not. They talk about everything. I got to give it to them. And one thing that they are very good at on that podcast is doing interviews. And there's no debating. There's no, you know, this isn't Chris Mannix trying to implore for his point of view or the point of view that Eddie Hearn told him. It's really just them asking questions and letting the person just talk and knowing to stay quiet to let them keep talking. And so they just did an interview with Steven Espinoza, which was really interesting. They asked him about how in the hell Javante Davis has been able to develop some of the... um you know, the, the fan base that he's had. And they asked him about um, the fights that Showtime and, and how things have changed now that they've got Fox um, in the mix as well. And so what I gather is that Showtime is run by some by Steven Espinoza and other businessmen who are actually businessmen and are not taking this as personal as fans are. I think a lot of this whole, oh, you know, Showtime is not happy and blah, blah, blah. I think that's a lot of fans... Um, projecting their opinion, their opinions on how they should feel, um, how Showtime should be feeling about this. When the reality is, I think they understand that this is a, a, a business, and Showtime has been here before. In 2014, 2015, when PBC launched, Showtime had a very poor year, and they got the, the short end of the stick, having to broadcast the. Uh, Danny Garcia and Rod Salka fight. And although they got some good fights like Marcos Maidana and Adrian Broner, they did get the short end of the stick for a while and they had some fights. I mean, I, there was a period where like the only headlining fight that they got was like a Gary Russell Jr. fight that nobody watched. So um, I think that they know, they, they know the score of the game here and they know what's going on. And Espinoza spoken about this in the past where he was like, look, if these guys go fight on Fox and come back, it helps us because that means that they've they've grown their fan bases as fighters because Fox has a much bigger reach than Showtime or any other cable network has. 
And so you look at Steven Espinosa, the dude's a former lawyer. I think he knows how the games work. I know he understands how business works and he's not putting his feelings into it. And if they have to get out the game, then they will. I mean, look at CBS, Showtime's parent, um, and now merged with Viacom, one of the biggest companies in the world. They just lost the SEC. And they didn't lose it because they, they for any reason other, they pulled out of the bidding because they understood that ESPN and Fox were coming with far more money than they were comfortable spending. So they said, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to interested in having this product at this price. And it's not personal. These guys know what they're doing. There's too much, too much money at stake with these companies for them to get in their feelings about, oh, Fox is taking uh, Errol Spence away from us. I think that they understand what is going on, and they know that there's a long-term plan with all of these guys. Um, so uh, anything else you want to add, or should we move on? Yeah, just a quick further thought on that. I mean, I think one one opening for the PBC with Showtime would be kind of like premium fights that would be like not quite pay-per-view. You know, I, th- I think there is a chance we could see um, – Jamal Charlo, Chris Eubank, if that, you know, or Derevyanchenko, you know, which would probably be higher purses than they might want to do on Fox. We might see one of the, some of the 154 pounders. I mean, we'll see. I, I feel like not many of those fights materialized um, this year on Showtime. I mean, the, the Davis Gamboa fight is definitely going to have big purses. That's kind of an example of that, but it, it will be interesting to see how that fits together because, um, I mean, it's kind of crazy for, for all the activity the PBC had on Fox this year. There's still so many other fights, you know, so many other potential fights that can be done in, in multiple different divisions. I mean, stuff like if Gary Russell Jr. and Leo Santa Cruz ever fight, like, would that be on pay-per-view or could that be like a premium cable fight where they just have, you know, fairly large purses? So I, I that's definitely an interesting story to watch in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I have a ton of stuff to say, but um, on this and specifically about the strategy about which fighters go where. And obviously, they have some rhyme and reason to how they're doing it. But I I mean, I have my thoughts, but I'm going to spare those for now. Um, we can talk about that in the chat. Uh, so yeah. let's move on to the next question. Today, I was surprised to learn that Max Unboxing is still on the air. How has it been doing in the ratings? The answer to this question, I think I can speak for both of us, is that um, neither of us pay close attention to Max's ratings overall from what I've generally seen every now and then. I don't think that they are very good. Um, they're probably below average for the expected, uh, what would be expected in that time slot if they had any other program. But I mean, I think that this show is a way for them to say, uh, this is what we're doing in order to grow the boxing property. CAA obviously has some investment in um, the boxing that Top Rank shows, in addition to basically representing a majority of the talent you see on air at ESPN. So I think this is a way for them to make sure everyone is happy where they give Max this show. I'm pretty sure it's very um, low cost in terms of the creation and the production of the show. But I'm not so sure it's doing well. Um I, I don't think it's doing poor enough, though, that they would cancel it. You know, it's not like Dan Raphael's show. Um, yeah, I don't have anything to add. I mean, just on this topic, have you been aware of any, you know, really relevance in the sport that has come from that? I mean, do you, do you think it's having a benefit, a detriment? I mean, just anything about that? I think for the most part, people just ignore it. Um, there, I believe there was one Timothy Bradley take from the show that was pretty pathetic that got viral. 
um, amongst boxing Twitter, but not much. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the the one thing I'd say about that is like sometimes it can be deceptive, like what doesn't overlap between like Twitter and like boxing Twitter <laughs> and like a wider audience. I know like I've heard a bunch of the PBC fighters say like Sean Porter definitely that he's more recognized now because of the PBC show and certainly him, you know, being one of the hosts, but this is true of the fighters who appear on it from that than really from any other time in his boxing career, you know, which is interesting because it's just like that shows on, you know, you see a fighter in a different context than just fighting. You get to hear them talking, which is, you know, a good way to learn their personality. Obviously. I mean, you, you learn some things from seeing them fight, but you learn a lot more from seeing them talk and also just that they run those shows so much. Um, so it, it is possible that they're reaching some kind of more casual audience, people who maybe know who Max is, and then they see that and, you know, but one big difference between ESPN and the, the Fox shows is the Fox shows run just all the time on FS1 and FS2. Like I, right. I just, I know from seeing like my DVR schedule. And as far as I know, the Max on boxing has that one airing. And then after that, you would have to, you know, you could find it on the, um, like ESPN plus app. I, I believe, I don't even know if you can uh, get it if you don't, like I subscribe to ESPN2 on cable so I can view it there, but I don't even know if it's visible otherwise. But um, yeah, so anyway, just uh, it's possible it's reaching people, but um, you know, just again, another thing with compared to the PBC shows, just because they rerun them so much, another benefit. Um, one of the things that PBC sought out to do early on was... Um, to kind of bridge the gap between fights where guys could be in the spotlight without having to be in training camp and having a fight. Because if you look at it, boxing um, is a sport that lends itself very well to creating stars. And what I mean by that is the NBA has so many stars because you have these guys that you can see their face. You know, part of the thing with the NFL is you don't see these guys' faces. You don't see, they don't talk that much. You know, there's a bunch of them, but the NBA, you have these stars. They, you, you can see them. You know what they look like. Um, you see them on the court and, and all this stuff. And boxing, you you know, these guys, you could see these guys too. And um, one of the things PBC sought out to do was to bridge the gap, to be able to promote guys between their fights and, and to keep them in, in the public eye. And I think that they're succeeding in doing that with the inside PBC shows. And I, I mean, I wish I could say the same for Max on Boxing, but I think... Part of the reason about Max on Boxing and why maybe it's not doing as well, um, even if the ratings might be slightly higher, although they're very the, the ratings are not good. But like um, part of the reason is I think Max Kellerman turns more people off than he does on, and there are still some boxing fans, a small portion of boxing fans that still you know care about what Max thinks. But overall. If you look at the casual sports fans, Max isn't like over with casual sports fans. I mean, what he's done on on FS1 has been, or sorry, not FS1, but on First Take is basically turn himself into a Skip Bayless, who's basically a clown that nobody listens to. <laughs> well, that's one way to put it. I mean, really, Max Max on on First Take is pretty consistently terrible, and this is coming from somebody who's considered themselves. A, a, a fan of Max for a very long time, from his ESPN days to when he used to be at Fox, all the way back to ESPN. Um, Listen to his afternoon drive show almost every single day. Uh, Max has gotten so bad. Um, I don't know if he's just repeating what the the producers tell him to to say, or somebody's writing his takes for him. But like Max is just, I, I it's almost unbearable sometimes. 
Like, and, and I know Stephen A has got the yelling gimmick and people may not like that, but Stephen A makes far more sense than Max does on a daily basis. Uh, that's a long answer to a very simple question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say anything else. Time to, to keep it moving. All right. Do you think we will see more and more overseas fights by top rank and matchroom as they withdraw from the U.S.? So, like, in the question, you're kind of implying that the answer has to be yes because you're... Right. It's a very know. pointed question. Yeah, because you're saying <laughs> as they withdraw from the U.S. So, obviously, if they're withdrawing from the U.S., the answer is yes. But um, I'm curious to see what you got to say because uh, I think my take will differ. Yeah, so I think we're going to do a longer or you are at least like 2020 preview show at some point. So this, uh, no, this we kind both of are going to do it, but go sure. On. Okay. Yeah. I'm game for that. But anyway, this cuts into that a little bit, but you know, it's like the match room speaking of them first, cause they're two different entities. Um, I think we've kind of seen what days is going to do in 2020, which um, they've said they have their existing contracts with golden boy and uh, like Golovkin and Canelo. So those are going to be like, you know, the, at least the Canelo and Golovkin fights are going to be relatively their more marquee fights. Um, presumably, Joshua is going to st- be stay tied to the network, but that's of less consequence to the U.S. activity. And then the match from USA is going to be done to make sure that they have an event in these kind of off months. So, you know, you have this weird mishmash show in January with Demetrius Andrade, uh, Jake Paul, and um, Tevin Farmer third on the, the bill. Um, and then they have this, you know, Mikey Garcia, Jesse Vargas fight with like, you know, crazy over 10 million in combined purses for that card, almost certainly, uh, which is just bonkers. And, you know, it, it's similar logic to the um, Maurice Hooker, uh, Jose Ramirez fight where Jose Ramirez got 4 million, which seemed a lot, <laughs> a lot of money at the time until Mikey Garcia got seven. But, um, you know, where they're just trying to make sure that they kind of fill in the schedule. And it, it kind of feels like that's going to be the role of Matchroom. Separately talking about the international stuff with Matchroom, Matchroom has these other international entities where I believe there's Matchroom Spain now. There's definitely Matchroom Italy. And they're going to keep doing that to service um, these these local markets for Dazen. You know, they're in a lot of different territories. So, um, you know, it's helpful to have local shows so people aren't watching stuff in the middle of the night. As much as they talk about the the benefit of spreading, you know, the scale advantage of having these events and scale, you know, sp- uh, broadcasting these different ter- territories and how they get so much of a greater benefit than just broadcasting in the U.S., like, we know that that's not really true. I mean, the same way that the Matchroom, you know, Italy shows don't really register here. I don't think the Matchroom USA shows register too much in Italy. But anyway, that was a long answer to that. Uh, do you want to talk about Matchroom first, and then I'll talk, we'll talk about Top Rank? Uh, well, I think, as, yeah, go on. So I think with Top Rank, um, I think with both of them, I think this is completely overblown. I don't think that, First of all, Matchroom is not going anywhere. I know it's it's a meme almost to say that Eddie's going to go back to the UK with his tail tucked between his legs and blah, blah, blah. I don't see it happening. Um, they really need to do something in 2020. This this is a make or break year. And um, we're go- I don't think they're going anywhere. I think they'll continue to do cards. And, and they're experimenting. Um, it's clear that they understand that they're going to lose money. It appears that they're okay with that. It doesn't seem... Because look, they're not doing anything crazy in order to get new subscribers. They're trying to do basically 
more of what they've done in the past. And they're trying to formulate it a little differently now. You know, they had the YouTube card, but the YouTube fight was the main event. And then they had these two, um, you know, mismatches on the undercards in the Devin Haney and the Billy Joe Saunders fight. And, and I think they're trying it again. They're going to try it in a little slightly different way. They're going to put the YouTube fight as the co-main versus the main event, which, okay. Um, but I, I think that they're still trying to find th- their footing and so they still have time to sort of work it out. You know, Joshua, I don't consider into this because Joshua is more of a Sky Sports product than anything. And um, I believe he will fight in the UK for at least the next 12 months. Um, so I don't I don't really see them going anywhere. Um, if, if you're one of those people that thinks like, oh, you know, I want to see Dazen go away and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're going to have to wait a little longer because I think... They're going to give it their best shot to try to get um, some major sports rights deal and probably they strike out, but they're going to give it their all uh, up until they get that rejection before maybe they just fold altogether and close the U.S. um, part of their, what do you call it, their company, I guess. You want to talk about top rank now? Yeah, um, yeah. I don't really have anything more to add about days. And if we want to talk more, we can do that on the year ahead uh, episode. But um, regarding top rank, yeah, I, I think you said some of the stuff is overblown. Like it looks like they're doing, you know, a handful of shows internationally, just you know, either to cover losses or to prevent losses or just to make more money than they would otherwise. I, I know we've had uh, differing opinions across the three of us on the main podcast when this has come up before, but. Um, I mean, to the you know pointed question, I don't see that as a withdrawal from the U.S. I th- see that as just you know a way to again either make money or you know stem uh, losses. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything more to say? I mean, I, I feel like Top Rank is still definitely going to be primarily U.S. focused. One hundred percent. I don't. I, so here's the thing, okay? And and I want you to listen very closely to this now. Bob Arum said that we're going to go overseas. But listen to what you're saying. Bob Arum said. When was the last time that Bob Arum <laughs> said some stuff and it actually happened? I mean, really. He he signed Fury and, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're going after Wilder and blah, blah, blah. That didn't happen. So, like, it's completely overblown that that um, they're going to go overseas. I think there will be some fights that go overseas, but there were fights that if they went overseas, you wouldn't have thought twice. Occasionally, some guys go overseas. Gervonta Davis fought in the UK. That didn't mean that Mayweather Promotions was going overseas. It's far from it. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't think you know. You really think Terence Crawford is going to go fight in South Africa? Come on now. I don't see it happening. Terence Crawford. I mean. The other question is like, well, what should that's the fighters funny. I think fight that's overseas? Extremely likely. I don't think so. I, 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 I is, is, is incompetent as Bomac is. I don't think he's that incompetent. Uh, I think they'll go where they can get paid. Um, but that's to be seen. Um, I mean, we um, know some, some, some overseas fights are happening, like the Jose Ramirez fight. I mean, that's already set up. You know, if they, if they were, why is Inouye fighting here in Vegas? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I've wondered about that as well. I mean, I'm assuming that was tied into a deal with a casino to try to bring in Japanese tourists. Um, that's the only reason that makes sense to me. It certainly doesn't make sense from a, that a US TV people? standpoint. <laughs> uh, that fight ain't uh, yeah, going to do well. 
Yeah, um, I, I'm confounded. Again, unless it's just aimed at getting international tourists to a Vegas casino, I, I don't understand that promotion at all. Um, all right. Why do you think Broner gets so little credit for jumping up and fighting Marcos Maidana? I mean, it's funny. I mean, I was just referencing that earlier in my response flashback to 2013. I believe that was end of 2013, yeah. Um, it's like, I mean, it was just it was part of a perception, whether it was correct or not, that him moving up in weight was as a result of laziness and not daring to be great, that he couldn't make 135 when he had a frame for 135, um, and that he had moved up all the way to 147 because he didn't want to have to cut weight anymore. So it's not really something that he deserved praise for. It's something that he deserved derision for. So I I don't know. I, I mean, the answer might be somewhere in the middle. I mean, uh, I think at this point, uh, Broner is definitely more of a welterweight than anything else. He might still be able to make 140, possibly. He doesn't seem to have the biggest frame, but I mean, he's got some mass on his body. Um I don't know. I mean, I know it's a silly question. I answered it more seriously than it probably deserved. Do you have anything uh, more to say about that? Yeah, I I think in due time, people are going to look back at Broner and they're going to look back with a fond eye. And they're going to... I think so many people got caught up in the, the Golden Boy versus Top Rank stuff that Broner got a lot of hate that he probably didn't deserve. And um, when you look... I, I think in due time... People will see the, the how funny Broner's career was and how, like, the dude had some balls on him. Like, you got to remember, Marcos Maidana was basically seen as a monster. Not that he could outbox anybody, but, like, the dude is going to put anybody out. And a Broner, a guy jumping up from 135, if he got caught, that that was, that you know, it, it was, it, Maidana... Like, that was, I don't know who the biggest puncher at 147. I, I guess it's kind of similar to Mikey jumping up to fight Spence. But, like, I, I thought Broner was nuts for taking that fight. Um, and furthermore. Oh, totally. <laughs> one of the things that, also, because he went from fighting Mala Naji, the lightest puncher at heavyweight, or sorry, heavy uh, welterweight, then to fight Maidana, who f- fights at heavyweight sometimes, but um, was the biggest puncher. But the other thing is, like, this is low-key one of the fights, the best fights of the decade. Like, seriously, look back at it. It's hilarious. Um, Broner, you know, with the humping. Maidana with the humping. The fact that Broner got caught. The crowd going nuts. And then if you actually go back and watch, Broner fought a hell of a fight in the second half. Comes back, hurts Maidana in the final round. Like, that is some. that takes some heart. That takes some balls. It's why these two got massive respect for each other. And if you ever see them interact, they react like they've been through some stuff together. Because that was a hell of a fight for both of those guys. And I hope at some point they both get credit for that. Um, Maidana, obviously a fan favorite. You know, everyone loves Maidana. I'll never forget um, when Jim Gray got pissed at him because he had the cookie in his mouth and was trying to talk in the post-fight interview. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I, I hope at some point Broner gets the credit for just having a hilarious career. You don't have to think he's great because not everybody could be great, okay? Um, But Broner had some things go wrong for him where combination of he missed or he had to move up because he didn't want to lose weight, got compared to Floyd when he shouldn't have. Um, but ultimately like Broner has been good for a lot of laughs in his career, whether they're laughing at him or with him. Uh, let's move on. Um, I have a lot to say about this one. So the question is, let's imagine that John Skipper 
and Eddie Hearn got fired for Christmas. <laughs> and they decided to bring you guys in, you and me. How would you go about handling days in for the next 12 months while also keeping in mind certain fights won't happen for one reason or another? So I think what that means is like, you know, Spence isn't coming over to fight guys and, you know, you're really not going to get much more signing. So how are you going to make this work with what they've got right now? Oh, jeez. So do you need time to think or, or should I go? Yeah, you, you can go first. All right. So I love this question because I've thought about this a lot. Because in my mind, if you're given this much money, you should be able to succeed. And so far, they're proving me wrong. You know, there's there's this rumor out today that um, basically they're losing money on both Canelo and Golovkin. And that's why they want to send them off to Japan. This is from some Japanese article in Yahoo Sports Japan. So if I'm going to change things, I think the first thing I would do is I would change the pricing structure. I would get rid of the $20 a month and I would make it free. It would just be free. The app would be free. And there would be fights on there that you'd be able to watch for free. So literally any fight that isn't, um, we would say Showtime Championship boxing quality, that's free. You, as long as you have the app, you can watch that fight. It'd be essentially YouTube. Um, I would have a, pr- a price point of $9.99 a month, and those would get you, get you probably 12 to 14 cards a year. And those would be like the championship level fights. So like Golovkin's fight is going to be, um, is going to be, uh, that'll be part of the $9.99 a month package. And then I would have pay-per-view. $60 to watch Canelo fight. You pay that 60 bucks, you get six months or, or something like that of the subscription of the $9.99 a month option. And so my whole strategy would be every boxing fan has to have our apps installed on their phone. Every boxing fan. And how you do that is like, well, there's going to be fights that you'll be able to watch. And the only way you're going to watch them is you have to have the app. Now, you don't have to have money, but you have to have the app. And so from here, I I feel like this is the only way that you can trans... uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, transfer those regular boxing fans into actually being paid subscribers. And so this is the only, to me, the only pricing structure that they haven't tried that might work for them to make money. Because I, 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 I'm confident that Canelo, if they moved it to pay-per-view and they charge $60, $70 for his fights on, on days in, they're going to get the same amount of people watching. It's just they're actually going to get paid for those people watching far more than they would if they just had them on 20 bucks a month. So that's what I would do. I would throw out the hundred dollars a month thing. Um, I don't. I, I'm not offering a yearly subscription. When you subscribe to the bundle of ESPN um, Plus, Disney Plus, um, you don't, there's no yearly rate for all three of them and Hulu as well. There's no bundle. Uh, there's just you pay by month if you want that option. So I would go that route because as far as like getting paid, like it, at a minimum, I want to get the same money Canelo was getting when he was on regular pay per view. And let's let's face it. I think most boxing doesn't make money. If you're Showtime, um, if you're HBO, you had to have pay-per-views in order to offset some of the losses on some of these cards. You know, for for all the great fights like a Maidana and Broner, for example, where that one seemed to generate money, you had fights like Bartholomew versus Easter, where yeah, you had that fight and it was a decent fight. And it's a fight that you want to have on your network. Or maybe, um, for example, like uh, Golovkin and Steve Rolls. Like, you still want Golovkin to be fighting on your network. That's still a, a star in the sport of boxing. But the problem is, 
there is no way that that fight's going to be able to generate the amount of new subscribers that would offset the costs. So the only way you could do that is having pay-per-view as an option. And so make the app free. All those Golden Boy fights and and, and what other fights do they have during the week? The, I guess you could <laughs> say the Matchroom NXT yeah. ones from, from the UK and Italy. Those will all be free. But for the championship level fights, you got to pay 10 bucks a month. And that makes sense. ESPN Plus works kind of similarly where you get those level fights. And then you have to pay for Canelo's pay-per-views. Maybe if Josh was in a big fight, I would charge for that too, but not necessarily um, necessary. Um, what, what would you do? <laughs> yeah, it's just such a mess. I, I, I'm going to answer much more succinctly. I, I've always thought about or tried to think about Dazen for better or worse as an investor and not as much about a boxing fan, you know, and that's why, you know, you see some people on Twitter who say, I love Dazen. Dazen is really paying off, you know, and I, I just, I've never understood, you know, it's like, I say, I've never understood. I get where they're coming from. And we've talked about this before, what they might've been thinking were that, you know, misunderstanding things about price elasticity, thinking that more people would sign up if they had a reduced price for pay-per-views and, you know, how that has not paid off. Um, I just, I don't see a way to salvage this. I mean, to me, it's just more and more losses. Um, you know, there, something we talked about before, um, the, Canelo Kovalev fight. I think the question was, is this going to do more viewers or less viewers than the Jacobs fight? And I said, if it doesn't do more, that is absolutely the death for Dazen as it exists in the U.S. Because you know, again, they're they're losing um, tens of millions of dollars ago to try to raise their profile, raise their brand, and try to uh, increase the amount of their their average subscriber rate. You know, their subscriber retention and their overall subscriber number, and that doesn't seem to have happened. You know, we didn't get any numbers released. We got some vague mention of they have, you know, 10% of 8 million in the U.S., but that's it. You know, by all indications, you know, this is really bad. You know, they're losing money, and the rate by w- rate at which they're losing money is not going down. <laughs> you know, I know that might sound kind of awkward, but it's like, you know, they're losing money to try to reach a tipping point of profitability, and they are the lines are not crossing you know, they're going in the wrong direction. So um, I don't have a way of salvaging it. I mean, what they've, they've kind of said is, you know, they have contractual obligations to Canelo and Golovkin. Um, their matchroom deal is what it is. I mean, that's that's a little bit sketchy. And, you know, it's two years and then some options after that. So there's still some time left on the two years. Um, so to me, it's a big question mark. I mean, you know, if they if Dazen even wants to continue to exist in the U.S., I mean, I think you mentioned, I mean, this is really more about thinking about other mainstream sports, trying to get some piece of one of the other mainstream sports and just kind of sustaining with the combat sports subscribers that they have. I mean, we've seen a, a reduction in the number of shows they've done in the U.S., but an attempt to try to make the shows more significant, like speaking of this, you know, 10 plus million Mikey Garcia card coming up. Um, you know, it will be interesting to see. I mean, we don't know who Canelo's fighting. We don't know, you know, the Golovkin fight is an absolute zero in terms of fan interests against Let a mandatory. jump in here. So I have a question that's kind of yeah. tangentially related, but I think it's worth talking about is how soon are we to Canelo running out of interesting opponents? I think we originally talked about this when they made the signing where how long could they, they like have a pool of opponents that are interesting without either A, 
having to pay some exorbitant amount of money to a fighter who's not signed with the platform, or um, does he wind up fading or f- f- facing guys who aren't actually that interesting? You know, I, I think if we think of like who those guys are right now that they have, there's Callum Smith, obviously. There's a rumor about John Ryder. The Golovkin fight is possible, but highly unlikely. Given Canelo says, I'm not interested in fighting him, the business would have to make sense. And what that means is unless they pay him way more than he normally gets paid, he's not fighting him. Billy Joe Saunders, Demetrius Andrade, I think it's likely that one of those two guys would lose before we could get to the point where Canelo would be um, a viable opponent for them. So, like, how? I mean, who do you see? Like, what else do they have? Bivol? Bivol's not exactly signed to them. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Besides, I mean, you know, it's it's like we don't know the viewership numbers for Kovalev, the Kovalev fight, but just like the Google trend numbers and just what we know from looking at Reddit was less than the Daniel Jacobs fight. And, you know, again, it's it's the the thing of what, what are they trying to accomplish? I mean, Canelo, by all indications, you know, kind of gets to fight whoever he fights. It's it's the problem of Golden Boy and Dazen to pay his opponent. His pay is fixed. So you would think that would incentivize him to fight lower-level opponents. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, so that's sort of that, – that gets messy. But I mean, from the standpoint of Dazen trying to bring in subscribers, it's like – you would think from this point on all of his options are just going to be lower profile than what he's already had. You know, Kovalev was an interesting kind of Hail Mary, but that didn't end up really registering to a huge extent. And yeah, as you said, a Callum Smith fight, even if it happens, is not going to do impressive numbers in the U S neither is a Billy Joe, you know, Billy Joe Saunders, probably even less. Um, yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it's a head scratcher, you know? Um, I mean, even again, being the PBC show, what if he fought Jamal Charlo? You know, that'd be a fight I'd like to see. But, um, you know, one, it's almost certainly not going to happen. And two, you know, how much does that register in terms of, you know, saving or, you know, there, there's nothing in the back pocket of DAZN. I mean, you know, there's been talk for so long of this, this the third GGG fight. But, you know, every day that goes on since the second fight, it is less and less interesting, you know. So it's 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 not like they have something in their back pocket they can pull out. I mean, th- this is uh, a tangent to a tangent, but it's like comparing AEW and NXT. Like NXT has started to beat AEW in the ratings for the those who don't know this is a professional wrestling. Um, you know, well, I'm not going to explain for those who don't know what it is, but you know. NXT is an offshoot of WWE, so they they have the option to bring people off of the main WWE roster to spruce things up to have big events. They have a much deeper pool of talent being developed at the WWE Performance Center. AEW, we've seen most of the big matches already. You know, there are, there are a few that they have left to do, but they have nothing that's going to be higher profile than what's come previously. And really, for the most part, it's going to be diminishing returns from here on out. They really don't have any ammunition waiting. And it, it just feels that way for DAZN. You know, there are no bigger fights. I mean, if they didn't already get a Wilder or Fury fight, they're, you know, for AJ, they're not going to be able to buy those. AJ's diminished now that he's lost. And, you know, Canelo's already had his biggest fights, which, you know, they're still huge by the standard of the sport, but they aren't bigger than what they've already done that's failed to really gain a huge footing for them. You know, and as... Th- said like they have huge subscriber retention problems when there isn't good boxing on people unsubscribe so 
Um, you know, I think they, they were hoping this was going to be more of a snowball where they could continually add subscribers with each one of these events. And it hasn't seemed to be that way. The indications are they have a certain number of people where it's the Venn diagram overlap of Canelo fans who are tech savvy enough to watch his fights this way and are, you know, social media savvy enough to even know when his fights are happening because they're no longer promoted through traditional, you know, media, at least to the extent they were previously, you know, they buy some commercials, but that's about it. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm a broken record, but it just doesn't seem to be working. You know, the business model that they had laid out does not seem to be working. Yeah, I was, I mean, the Kovalev fight was like pretty disappointing for me because I think I was the one that was saying, I think it's going to do very well. I think that that was going to be, um, not the turning point for them, but certainly um, it would be like uh, definitely some something to keep them going. But it looks like it, it disappointed uh, pretty severely and possibly didn't exceed Jacobs's numbers. Um, I would be actually pretty shocked if it did uh, increase the, uh, or su- exceed Jacobs's numbers. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it, we, we went all over the place with this question, but... Um, this is a much longer conversation that we will have on a later episode where we just kind of look at 2020 and, and how things might be shaking out. Um, next question. Which prospect looks like they will have the brightest future and why? Do you have one? Um, you go first. Um, so, like, there's some obvious answers here that I don't want to give, like, you know, Virgil Ortiz, Ryan Garcia. Like, I'm not going to, you know, you know those ones. So I, I'll just toss out one that of a fighter that I've seen personally, that I've uh, watched him fight numerous times, and I think he might be pretty good, and that's Jerry Perez. He's trained by Leo Santa Cruz's dad. Um, he's still in that phase where he's blowing dudes out, and obviously at that level, you should expect him to do that, and he's doing uh, he's doing just that. So, um, you know, I think he's might have a future with him. The other answer that I would give, and that's only because he's fighting this weekend, is Malik Hawkins, who's going to fight on the YouTube version, uh, on the YouTube undercard for Javante Davis and Yuri Arcus Gamboa this weekend. But I would just throw out those two guys as guys to um, to look for. If either of them loses, I don't want to hear you guys coming to me saying, well, you said, you know, I'm just saying you should look out for him. He might have a bright future. I don't know. You know, there, there are guys that we think these guys are going to be absolute studs, and they, they wound up, wind up not being that great. Felix Verdejo looked like a monster. You know, if you go back and look at his early uh, tape, Verdejo looked like a monster. Oscar Valdez looked like he was the the second coming. Just a tremendous combination of ability to box, power, um, combination punching. He looked like he had it all. But look, it's one thing to do it against guys that you're expected to do those things with. And it's hard to test the things that um, count on the championship level without fighting championship level fighters, you know. So these prospects, you know, then there are guys who you just don't quite expect to be good and they wind up being very good. You know, I, I'm trying to think of somebody who, I guess Jamal Charlo was a guy who was seen as a good prospect, but not a great one. Um, I always think of Danny Garcia as the classic example of this. Yeah, Danny and Terrence Crawford as well. Danny Garcia and Terrence Crawford right, were yeah. both not seen as, uh, I mean, nobody had them on their radar. You know, Mikey Garcia was on radars, but not those two. Yeah, that was the crazy thing with Danny Garcia. He was so disrespected (laughs) that he got the chance to face a bunch of high-profile opponents and then kept upsetting them. You know, it was because people thought so little of him that he got those chances. I think in his first two or three title fights, or like I think on his first 
So he's an underdog to Khan, underdog to Matisse. Like the dude's probably been yeah, underdog, underdog to the champion um, several times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was thinking of um, oh god, Eric, Eric Morales. Eric Morales. You know, he was the the thought was oh you know he's a guy that the older you know it was like Eric Morales is at the end of their career, but it was like well okay you can beat this guy. sort of like when Austin Trout fought Cotto. It was like well he's undefeated so you get him there, but he's not very you know he's undefeated but not very good. You can still beat him and then you know upset him and then destroyed him in the second fight. But yeah, anyway, go on. Yeah, I, I guess your your bigger point is just you don't. It's hard to know at this stage who's really going to end up being good. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. My quick answer, my my, or do you have more to say? No, you can go. Yeah, my quick answer, which is kind of a cheat because it's asking about prospect, just in terms of young fighters. Um, David Benavidez is still, you know, he has a belt, so he's not a prospect, but he to me is the fighter that has the highest star potential. I mean, I I believe in his fighting ability, his his fighting style. And the push that he's getting fighting on these pay-per-view undercards and seeing the the, the hype that's starting to build around him. Uh, Tank Davis fighting this weekend is another guy where it's just, you know, really building up real star, real organic star power at such a young age. Um, you know, the the... The thing with him, I mean, his just his height and reach don't seem to be, you know, he doesn't really seem to have the frame to go through multiple weight classes. But, you know, who knows? Canelo's short and he's up at 175 now. So we could definitely see Davis at 147 eventually. Um, I, just rewatching some of his stuff this week. I'm just just more and more impressed with him the more I watch him. Um, Tifuma Lopez is an interesting example. Um, you know, I, I know I've had a reputation for being a hater of him, but the, I still... I, I feel like there's still so much we haven't seen from him, you know? Yeah. We haven't seen him get knocked out yet, but it's coming. Well, but Lomachenko. it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be, yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing to see how that plays out. But yeah, as far as early prospects, I'm just, uh, my temperament is always to be skeptical of prospects. You know, like we saw Carlos Balderas lose this weekend. As far as guys who are a level below that, who don't have a title yet. I mean, cause now like Tia Lopez has a title. Shakur Stevenson has a title. There aren't really any names that I would really bet it all on. You know, like Spence was a guy from his first couple fights, looked like he was going to be a future world champion and a future star. Just he fought with such a level of maturity, even at that, you know, young age and and limited level of professional development. And there, there really aren't any, you know, it's like I was saying going back to 2008 where there were just no prospects that really caught my eye. And it took a really long time for that class to develop guys like Crawford, um, Thurman, Danny Garcia, like they, it really took a long time for them to mature as pros and to prove themselves. And, um, to me, it's still like you were saying, I, I, you know, uh, who the best of that group will be. I, I feel like we still don't know yet. Some of the Olympians still might lose like Carl Spalderas did. And, um, the next wave, I don't know who might emerge out of that. You know, it's like guys like Stephen Fulton. I mean, he's only 122 pounders that, not to say there's much star potential there, but I mean, just seeing his last fight, it just looks like, wow, he could be really special. Chris Colbert, same thing. But, you know, you never know who could run into issues like Jorge Linares. You know, there are just so many ways it could go wrong. Guys who get cut, who end up not having great chins. So we'll, we'll see. Well, here's I'll go back to we should. So what year is this? Maybe 2012, 2013. Just a story about there are a lot of prospects out there and very few of them are going to make it. Um, at least the way you think. The, um, so I believe about in 2012, maybe a little after 2013, 2014, Top Rank had a hell of a stable of prospects, very similar to the way they have now. 
But I'll just rattle off some of the names. Um, Oscar Valdez, Felix Verdejo were two of their crown jewels. Then you had guys like Andy Ruiz, Jose Ramirez, Ivan Nahara, um, Alex Sacedo, Jose Felix Jr. Um, let's see, anyone else that I'm missing out? Um, Eric DeLeon, Andy Vences. Um, you know, I, I could probably keep going if I looked at BoxRec, but like of this group of fighters that I've just named, how many are actually relevant today? Jose Ramirez, right, right. Andy Ruiz Jr., but he's not with top rank anymore, and everybody basically had given up on him. Um, Oscar Valdez, although Valdez does not seem to, he's, he's going to pan out exactly the way, but I mean, he got a title, so credit to him for that. And that's it. Those three fighters, <laughs> Esquiva Falcao, Ryota Murata. Murata's uh, turned into a decent fighter, but you know, um, of these fighters, like, all those guys were promoted very similarly early on. Jose Felix got got a lot of uh, opportunities to headline cars and and be in position to turn into a good fighter, and it never quite panned out. They he even fought on a pay per view, and wound up getting outboxed by Brian Vasquez. So it's so hard with these guys, you know. That basically they're it's a crapshoot, and a, a guy like Verdejo who looked like a sure thing wound up being far from it, and you know he's fared worse than some of these other guys. Um. Yeah, so, yeah. We'll see. I mean, Eric DeLeon looked like a monster as a prospect. What happened to him? Andy Vence has completely out, uh, undressed him uh, on one of the early... I think it was on the um, the Valdez Quig undercard. And he's been MIA since then. Andy Vence himself has been MIA. And he hasn't lost yet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's it's so hard because at the er- early on, you see guys like uh, who are either you know just matched against super soft opposition. Oh, he has as lost. I was, he lost was the case. Albert Bell. Wow, he lost uh, this year in June on the Fury undercard. Wow, Albert wow, Bell. Not, not to be confused with the lost former to Chicago White Sox and Cleveland Indians player. Good pull, but yeah, it's like you know there are guys like. Um, Teofimo Lopez, who so far have impressed because of speed and power, but at a certain point, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, is that going to run out eventually? But, you know, if you're knocking out Richard Comey with one punch, you know, maybe that's going to sustain him. I, I still feel like there's a lot of his game we haven't seen. A guy like Jerome Ennis has seemed to be, you know, very dynamic fighter and have speed and power, but again, haven't seen him tested. Shakur Stevenson, in my opinion, his his last fight was a pretty one-dimensional performance, even if it was dominant. So, um, you know, we'll start, this is right around the time we're going to start to learn that about guys, but there's no one who's really emerged yet where I'm that confident enough to call a shot. I mean, Mikel Zuiski, Brad Solomon, Mike Reed, these are all t- top-ranked guys who, what, what happened to them? Konstantin Ponomarev, where are they at? Yeah, Ponomarev really fell off. Wow. Yeah, so um, next question. Does Eddie Hearn get his contract renewed at days in, or does he get it reduced, which forces him to take most of his talent back to the UK? So I think um, he does get the, the like, it's going to get re- renewed. Um, but the only thing is I think they're going to scale it back and you mentioned how they're going to start to try to combine, um, all these fights into one to kind of, uh, you know, try to make bigger events and maybe make a, I guess maybe cards that force you to sign up because there's two or three fights or fighters that you're interested in watching. Um, that would be my theory on how this goes. 
Um, what do you think? I, I, and I also, I don't think he's taking his talent back to the UK. Not yet, at least. I mean, you know, it's the right way to answer this. At a certain point, the money's going to run out. You know, it's like they're still in a, you know, sort of startup-ish phase of DAZN's U.S. operations where they're trying to see, you know, um, <laughs> again, can we reach this tipping point where it's really worth it here? And, you know, you know we seem to have the indication from John Skipper um, when he did a series of interviews or, uh, during, quote, fight season. Um that basically they're sort of in standby mode, just trying to keep the combat sports going uh, with the the stuff they're contractually obligated to put on and retain as many of those subscribers as possible. But they're really still looking for mainstream sports. So, you know, as far as the Eddie Hearn part, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, they're really just spending the money trying to fill in the odd months between Canelo fights and these bigger events, which is a weird place for him to be in. Um I mean, it just comes down to at a certain point, the money is going to run out, you would think, or they're going to reach a point of sustainability that they're happy with. And um, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's uh, it's just so weird. I'm, I'm to some extent surprised they're even around this long to do stuff like making that, you know, eight figure Mikey Garcia, Jesse Vargas card. But, you know, they keep surprising me. That's as much as I have to say about that. Uh, are you there? I can't hear you. I don't know if you're on mute. Yeah. Who does Crawford fight in 2020? Any PBC fights on the horizon? Who does Crawford fight in 2020? Um, God, that's why I think the South Africa fight's happening. <laughs> you know, I think we're going to just start to see. They can't get away with that. They really can't. It's not a matter of getting away with it. I mean, he has contract minimums, and they're going to try to get him paid. And no, I don't think they're going to try to make a PBC fight. I mean, the Sean Porter thing was floated very briefly. And then once they realized, like, um, <laughs> you know, they might be forced to actually take that fight, they decided not to take it, you know, so uh, and then moved as far away from that as they could. You know, so that's an amusing storyline to me that now you have Sean Porter dogging Terrence Crawford, Terrence Crawford not really dogging Errol Spence anymore because, you know, for uh, numerous reasons, um, just no name stands out. I mean, aside like that, that I really do think out of all of for the I mean, I'm more surprised that Jose Ramirez is fighting internationally, like Lomachenko again, fighting internationally. Terrence Crawford, to me, it makes sense because it's just trying to get these guys to cover their contract minimum, you know, it's like uh, the Terrence Crawford contract is a contract which made sense if he was going to end up on pay-per-view eventually. It, it does not make sense to pay him over $3 million guaranteed per well, fight if he's going to fight on ESPN or ESPN plus. Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, it's sort of like a zombie contract where like top rank is probably losing money on all of his shows. Um, they, you know, don't have the market force to make pay-per-views work. I mean, that's the thing. Cause it's like, just to be blunt, I mean, how many, how many buys does a Sean Porter, uh, Terrence Crawford pay-per-view do like, could they do the Amir Khan pay-per-view over again in terms of the amount of, you know, the purses, could they do 5 million and 5 million for, for Crawford and Porter? Or is that going to lose money? And then if that's going to lose money, can they stage it? You know, is there a way they could even make a deal work with Sean Porter? I mean, that to me is why that that fight is a non-starter. I mean, they just don't even want to talk about it because it's like, you well, know. The other thing is like, do they? Do you actually think a Crawford and Porter pay-per-view is as successful as Spence Porter? I, I mean, that's so. the thing. Right, exactly. I mean, look, Spence did, you know, it's weird at the, the end of the year events. Like people are, are sort of, 
I mean, talking about the wrong things as far as the year in review, it's like Spence this year went from, you know, having never been on pay-per-view before, almost not even really being a headliner in the United States. I mean, people kind of forget how few headlining fights he's had in the U.S. Um, And then this year he sold um, about, you know, somewhere a notch over 600 million pay-per-view buys and sold. What did I say? Six million. Oh, nobody did that this year. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, six hundred thousand pay per view buys um, and sold over sixty thousand tickets. I mean, he had by far the breakout year of any. I mean, there's no one who comes even close. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous, you know. Um, yeah, I got to take Sean, on this, but I'll yeah, save it, it for when we actually uh, do this episode. Sure, sure. Yeah. So just to finish, it's like Sean Porter ended up being definitely a serviceable B side to Spence, but. You know, I, I think it, it's a little bit ridiculous when people try to uh, sweep the success of Spence Garcia under the rug by saying it was all Garcia. Um, and then, you know, now to the extent if people want to say that, you know, it's like it, it's Spence. It's Spence. You know, it's like it's the economy stupid. It's Spence stupid. Like Spence is a star in the U.S. Um, anyway, um, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, I, I think... If you look at uh, the way Top Rank does things, their moves are pretty telegraphed. Like, like they give you indication of what's coming, um, for better or worse. I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but it does seem like the Alexander Bespiton fight is going to happen next year, same way we knew about the Kavalaskis fight. And even though you may not have disagreed with it, um, they're going to do it either way because it's something that they can make, and there is some justification for the fight, same as there was with Kavalaskis, although not as much, but I'll, I can hear you out. Um, and I think also the fact that the um, the Ugas fight with Bespitin fell through because Bespitin got that cut, um, it, it really paves the way for that fight happening since Bespitin has nothing to do. Um, when he comes back, uh, assuming that maybe Ugas has just fought, so they can't do the mandatory at that point. Well, then Crawford as as uh, alternate al- alternate plan that kind of makes sense. I, although I do think that they want to get a name out there um, in his next fight, and I would not be shocked if he fights Kelbrook at some point in 2020. Again, it's just like the money is so weird there. I mean, how much money does that really draw, and what purses are the guys going to want? Well, you know, you want to talk about top rank going overseas, you know, if, if he goes over there, they don't have to worry about paying Kell Brook. They got to worry about paying Crawford. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, they, I guess they could do that as a UK fight. I mean, it's just funny. I mean, Eddie Hearn had a very pointed comment about like, it's not my job to get Crawford paid when there was a discussion of doing a Kell Brook fight sued? this December. Well, but I mean, just the point being like, um, I think. Eddie Hearn sees the same thing I'm seeing, which is Top Rank is currently losing money on Terrence Crawford's contract. So, I mean, they're they're happy to let Top Rank sweat a little bit, you know. Anyway. Uh, we can move on. On a scale of one to... He- oh, actually, I skipped one. Floyd Mayweather was the highest paid athlete of the decade. Besides the obvious of selling tickets, I'm wondering what other means took place that ultimately allowed Floyd to achieve this accomplishment. So I guess I'll put this really quick. So like Floyd has mastered the art of being able to stay in the news and to keep people talking about him. Now for good or bad things, he's he's been able to do that masterfully. There are some other things that he did. Um, he promoted to the right communities who would actually support him. Um, he never tried to win the battle of winning over the the boxing hardcore fan on the internet, although I guess it was kind of smaller back then. But he never really tried to do that. I guess in today's age, he wouldn't be trying to win over the Twitter fans. 
um, Floyd was going to look at, look to make fans out of people who don't ordinarily follow boxing. So like, there's two types of being popular. There's being boxing popular, which you could say somebody like um, uh, Gennady Golovkin is boxing popular, but then there's sports popular, which is a guy like Canelo, who Canelo is popular amongst people who don't follow boxing. And Floyd was able to be popular amongst both of those crowds. And that's why his numbers were far higher than anyone else's. You know, Oscar famously had a large female uh, fan base. I, I'm pretty sure that those that female fan base did not care about, you know, Ike Corte and William Joppy and all those guys. They cared about Oscar De La Hoya. And Floyd was able to do that. And one of the ways he was able to do that, you know, he, he, did, he made music. He uh, had the WWE thing. Um, he was on Dancing with the Stars. He did a lot of things that that would get him exposure to people who did not watch boxing and they could con- and he could convert them to be fans of him and not fans of the sport which is not good for the sport but in general i think there was some conversion of like you know a small percentage of people who would watch floyd who would then go on to watch uh the rest of boxing but i think that's one way that he did it you have anything else <laughs> It's just such a large topic. I'll, I'll, I'm going to answer in a, a different way. Um, something, uh, you know, I always love my Google Trends. I know they're kind of dopey, but I still like them. And it's 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 just like it's such an interesting way to like chart a fighter's career. And you'll see, you know, every time they fight, there's a spike. And assuming they win, generally speaking, those f- spikes keep getting bigger and bigger. And then the low parts of the chart between this, this, the spikes, which is just their their general traffic, like who's searching for them on a day to day basis, will continue to go up. Also, so you know, if you keep winning, you keep having high profile fights. Uh, it just keeps going up, and you know, I I know it's it's something that a lot of you know sort of a contentious topic. Does it matter if fighters keep winning? How much do losses matter? How much do wins matter? How much does it matter to have an exciting fight? Um, you know, it does matter that Floyd has been undefeated since the nineties. You know, he's a consummate winner. I mean, he's someone I, I remember in a, one of my classes in business school, the professor was talking about how much he liked tennis and talking about, you know, uh, Pete Sampras and some of the other great uh, tennis players who had, you know, long extended streaks of dominance. And, you know, it's like winners win. And, you know, people love to project this bullshit. And, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, you can't underestimate the 50, you know, I think people do like to talk about Floyd's personality and how savvy he is on social media, but I think more than anything else, it comes back to the boxing and it comes back to just winning, 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 uh, people knowing that when they watch Floyd, he's going to win. I mean, he's developed that brand. Um, I've always told this story about seeing a Golovkin fight and people were expecting a blowout when he fought Danny Jacobs and then literally seeing Golovkin fans leave the arena late in the fight because they didn't get what they thought they were going to get with Floyd. They want to tune in. They want to see him win, keep that undefeated record. And he just kept growing that brand. And, you know, again, it seems silly. Some of the fights, like you know, Robert Guerrero fight, you say, who, "What does it matter if he beat him? What does it matter if he beat Andre Berto when he beat him?" But he kept winning and he kept growing the brand. I have spoken. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I'm trying I, to think I, of a way to like send it back to you for the next question. Like, are you watching The Mandalorian at all? Do you yeah. know that show? Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the 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 Ugnot. What does he say? I have spoken. Uh, I think yeah. he, I think he does say that. I don't know anybody's name in the show though, so. 
Interesting. He's the short one voiced by Nick Nolte. So that's what I'll start saying when I'm done with questions. I have spoken. <laughs> All right. On a scale of one to Hebrew Hammer, how overhyped is Inoue? <laughs> uh, on, a, on a scale of one to Hebrew Hammer, about a two. I don't know. I, I feel dirty even having them in the same sentence. There's no comparison in terms of them being hype dropped. Like, um, Inoue, like, people lose their shit over him when he's in these uncompetitive divisions to an unseemly extent. But the Hebrew hammer was just objectively horrible and HBO should be embarrassed for ever broadcasting him. I mean, you know, that's just the quality of him as a fighter, not to mention his multiple and absolutely crazy missed uh, drug tests. I got nothing to say. I, I don't really care. Uh, I, I, I never got the Selden thing. I, I just, the moment I saw him on HBO, I was like, this guy's terrible. Um, and the fact that they were hyping him was pathetic. So I just am not down with it. Um, why is getting an official Wilder Fury rematch announcement this week so important? What do you think it says that we don't have one yet? Any theories? I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this. Um, I still like, we've heard such weird reporting recently about the relationship between Fox and ESPN with this fight. Um, and you'd think at a certain point they're going to want to, you know, the conventional wisdom with the PBC is they will announce the next pay-per-view the night of the pay-per-view because they don't want to screw up the uh, well, promotion, the existing that, pay-per-view. But then Spence decided to uh, flip his car. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess. But still, I mean, it's like at what point does the Wilder one get announced then, you know? So. I am confused, and I think there's a lot more to the story than we know. And, you know, still ba- virtually 100, if not 100% of the reporting that we're getting out of this is coming from ESPN slash top rank slash CAA sources and not anything from the PBC or the Wilder side. So I I continue to be baffled. But I think the, the point of the timing and the question just has to do with football playoffs. You know, they're going to want to promote it alongside that. But you know, depending on the nature of the deal and who's showing it, you know, that could definitely impact the way that the promotion is done. Yeah. So that's what it really comes down to when you say it, when it, when the conversation is, or the question is, why is it important to do the announcement this week? Well, it's because you have bowl games and the bowl games, there's not like 20, 10, 20 bowl games going on at the same time. Um, the, the bowl games, usually there's like one or two happening at the time. So that means there's far more focus on one area of the sport, uh, sorry, on on one, I guess on the sport of college football. And then furthermore, we're going to get into the NFL playoffs where you would think that these would be prime opportunities where you have a lot of people watching so that you can put your commercials there and expose a lot of people to the fight. Now, why don't we have the announcement yet? Well, I think because it's not official. I think there are still things that they're trying to figure out. Um, there's a lot that goes into having these two networks come together. There are things that you may not be cognizant of uh, when it comes to what does it take to broadcast a fight. You know who's gonna wh- who's gonna get the, the signage. You know who's in charge of bringing in advertisers and sponsors. And furthermore, how do you split up the revenue generated from that? You know, you you come down to well, what about the commentary? Like, what is the logo going to be? Are we going to do what HBO and Showtime did where they just put both of their logos next to each other? Is one uh, is one network going to be featured a little more prominently? Which network goes first when you say, is it ESPN Fox or ESPN Showtime or Showtime ESPN? Like, you, you got to look at those things. Who's going to do the promotional stuff? Who's going to uh, 
to pay for the commercials because obviously you have to hire a production company to come and make those commercials. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And I, and the PBC has, um, they don't announce things until they're, they're set. And, um, you can tell that they don't really like to leak out their fights unless they're officially signed, unless they got the date and everything squared away. So I believe that that is part of the reason is just the simple fact that not everything has been figured out yet. And they don't want to get into this where some small thing, cause look, a lot of money's at stake with this fight and they don't want all that money to go down the drain. If for some reason they didn't think of one thing and they didn't have one clause in the contract squared away and then they get into a fight over it. So there's a lot at stake and you're dealing with people when you're dealing with networks. You know, I think boxing fans get encapsulated in this bubble where like boxing is the wild west and it's not as businessy as you would think. This is not the NFL. And so certain things are allowed. You know, you look at the the just the, the relationship that promoters have with the writers that wouldn't be allowed in other sports. They just wouldn't do that because there's a level of journalistic integrity that exists that doesn't exist in boxing. And that's because nobody's enforcing that. And there aren't enough people who are looking out for that thing, uh, given that boxing is a smaller sport than the NFL, for example, that nobody's really calling it out um, outside of a few people on Twitter. So I think when you bring in these um, other network people, they really um, aren't there. They've got lawyers. They've got all kinds of people um, looking at these contracts and making sure everybody's going to get um, what they expect to get. So that's my thinking why we haven't gotten an announcement yet. Is it weird? Yeah. Would it make more sense to, to me, to you, to everyone listening, if they were um, ESPN would have been uh, brought or advertising the fight all day yesterday uh, during the NBA games, yes. But you know what they were advertising? The Conor McGregor fight. But here's another thing. Um, ABC is not going to air no ads for a fight. They they didn't air any for McGregor. They won't air any for Wilder Fury because that's just not consistent with Disney's brand. So all the promotion will have to come from ESPN. And it'll be interesting to see how much because they have the McGregor fight coming up. I would think that they would want to put more of their resources into that. The other interesting thing is like, well, who's it? How is the breakdown going to work for like pay-per-view sales? Like, um, if you can order through ESPN Plus as well as Fox, like who gets like the share of the online sales? Like, because usually the uh, network gets all of those the the online sales of of a pay-per-view. Where ESPN Plus, ESPN Plus gets all the money. Well, what happens if you know they sell some on Fox and they sell some on ESPN Plus? Do they both keep what they make, or are they sharing that? Um, there's just a lot to, I, I would think get squared away before they can make the official announcement that they're going to be doing this fight. I don't think there's anything like super, um, like crazy about why it hasn't been announced yet. It's not because like, you know, they can't settle on a ring size or something like that, or Tyson Fury doesn't want to submit to any drug testing. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Well, so here's a question, which I continues to confound me. Why do you think all of the behind-the-scenes leaking is coming from the top rank ESPN CAA side and nothing from the PBC Fox side? Because PBC doesn't want anything out. First of all, I don't like. I think that's coming down from everybody at the top that we don't want anything coming out um, that isn't official. And top rank obviously doesn't mind that, and. 
they they believe that having the favorable coverage uh, amongst the people who cover the sport is worth more than um, than maybe being wrong. And one thing that you know about Bob Arum is the dude's okay with saying stuff that doesn't come true. And so putting it out there that this fight is happening on such and such day for whatever, um, I don't think that's as big of a deal to them as it is on the PBC side. The other thing is you got to remember Mike Coppinger represented by CAA. CAA has a connection with Top Rank. Um, Mike Coppinger has, I'm pretty sure, a, com- a regular dialogue with Bob Arum through text messages or whatnot. So if he was going to get information, which it seems like the information is mostly coming from Mike Coppinger, well, he's got the connection there. And um, that's just how Bob Arum does business, but it's not necessarily the way they do business on the other side. Yeah, I mean, it's just so weird that we keep saying, I mean, it's, I mean, it goes without saying that it's not really ethical journalism, but, you know, okay, it's just boxing. You don't care that, you know, it's like people don't really care that much, but it's like, it's, I really can't think of any examples of this where, again, it's like they're just printing the story on one side and they're sort of like, oh, well, you know, you, we gave you the opportunity to comment. You didn't want to comment, so we're just going to run it anyway. I mean, it's just um, – it's very weird. I mean, I don't know. It, it vaguely reminds me of the Andy Ruiz, Anthony Joshua, where the PBC did not say anything about it and, you know, eventually got to the point of there being uh, p- papers filed in a lawsuit before that fight actually got signed and confirmed. So I I, I don't – I mean, I just – I don't know. It, it doesn't um, – that that really does not add up to me. Again, I, I get why Coppinger would be able to get information from Top Rank. I mean, that's a good point. Um, but well, anyway, uh, I, I mean, have spoken. Just, they they want to win the PR battle. That's really what it is. They want to win the PR battle. The funny thing is, they they're interested in winning the PR battle, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they win the ratings battle, which is something that they've struggled with this year. Top Rank's ratings have decreased over. Um, I think for the second straight year they've they've decreased, and so it's it's really interesting what they're attempting to do. And and Top Rank's done this with HBO. They they, they were in the favor of HBO and all of this stuff. So um, I think that's all it is. But like at the end of the day, um, I'm really not. I don't care. I don't follow Mike Coppinger's leaks like like that. I didn't really care to listen to what he had to say on his podcast where he said, "Oh, this is going to be a Fox um, ESPN thing." Um, Fox will have, or ESPN is going to do all, you know, I, I don't care. We'll, I'll wait till the, the official announcement happens to sort of start to uh, get into the, the ins and outs and the nuts and bolts of this deal. Um, all right. If you have to choose only one, which network do you think will have a better slate of cards on their regular network in 2020? ESPN or Showtime? So no ESPN plus, no pay-per-view. Why? What do you see coming in the next year? So I think easily, I think we can both agree it's Showtime. And the the, the reason that I think it'll be Showtime is because ESPN um, is clearly shown that they're going to be moving and they want all of, I guess, their more interesting fights on ESPN+. Plus. So there's some word coming from on high that, th- that certain fights should be put on ESPN+, Plus and those tend to be the ones that would, um, you would think should be on ESPN+. And so ESPN had a pretty bad year this year. Outside of the Better Biv and Vosdick fight, there weren't that many great, you know, 50-50 sort of matchups on the network. Um, Showtime didn't have a great year this year either, but it looks like it's going to pick up again next year. And we've already seen that, they ha- that they've had a slew of, um, of announcements. 
Um, although I, I will say that Showtime should get some credit for the shields and hammer fight, which you know people sleep on. Is like that was one of the more significant fights of the year, and it wound up being actually a pretty entertaining fight and had a great story coming out of it. Um, but I, I would go with Showtime in 2020. And what do I see coming in the next year? Um, Steven Espinoza said, expect to see uh, the welterweights and the junior middleweights back on the network. So that means we'll probably see Jamal Charlo stay on Showtime. We're going to see a couple of the welterweights come back. We already see Danny Garcia. And I think it's possible we see Jarrett Hurd come back headlining a card um, on Showtime. He's fighting on Showtime on the Garcia undercard. Um, but I think we'll see those guys who've gone to Fox, have uh, built up themselves up a little, and then they're going to come back to Showtime while these newer guys, like I can see Brandon Figueroa um, by the end of the year headlining a Fox card should this dude be able to string together a few wins, which I find to be uh, pretty difficult. But ESPN, I mean, it, it, it just seems like ESPN is really struggling with their matchmaking. Um, there's not a lot of depth um, in a lot of their divisions. I think they've done well with featherweight and super featherweight. But outside of that, um, light heavyweight kind of a, a wrench got thrown in because it looked like they were like it was popping there with Gilberto Ramirez, um, uh, Sergey Kovalev, and then Vazdik and Betterbiev, and then Betterbiev smoked Vazdik, Canelo smoked Kovalev, and now like what do they got left? You know, it seems kind of kind of like um, as quickly as as people started to get behind their light heavyweight stable, it kind of just disappeared right, with a couple totally. of. Uh, and, and that's why you build these guys up over time because um, you would have built up a couple of guys on the rise that now could be there looking at better be in the future, but they don't really have that. So, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm going to answer this in a nerdy way, which is like looking at the net, you know, trying to decide who will have a better schedule ESPN, you know, again, excluding pay-per-views or Showtime. It's like, you know, the market boxing landscape you have, you know, people are trying to buy and show content and people who are suppliers of content, you know, and you have this really weird marketplace where like Dazen wants to buy content and is willing to pay, you know, and doesn't really have access to it and is willing to really heavily overpay to get it. But, you know, they don't really have access to the PBC stable. They have, you know, minimal access to the top rank stable if they're willing to really overpay for fights. Um, and you know, top rank has a certain amount of stuff, but they don't really have a bank. So even the good fights they could potentially make, they don't, you know, it's a combination of a limited inventory and, you know, a limited bank, even some of the, you know, what would be, I mean, higher profile fights. I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it exactly, but you know, some mix of like Oscar Valdez, Burchelt, Frampton, I mean, how much are they going to have to pay to get those fights? Are they going to have to pay each of the fighters multiple millions of dollars? And then if they do, those definitely aren't pay-per-views. And do they have that within their budget to do that for just like a normal ESPN broadcast? Or are they going to have to go to a weird international destination? So to me, the ESPN situation is a little muddled. I mean, also, you know, talking about their next generation of prospects, um, you know, they have Tiafimo and Shakur who are now, you know, have broken out, but, um, you know, where are their fight's going to be? It's like if Lomachenko, Tiafimo, I mean, I still think it's hypothetical whether or not it will happen, but assuming it does happen, is that going to be on regular ESPN? Is that going to be on pay-per-view? Is that going to be on ESPN plus? I mean, again, it's like, how much are those guys going to need to get paid to do that fight? And where's the money going to come from? Showtime, 
I touched on a bit earlier. So that was ESPN, Showtime. Um, you know, there's no shortage of inventory on the PBC side. They have, you know, the biggest roster and a lot of stars that are really coming into their own. And, and I think you could see, and I think the boxing public would be enthousi- enthusiastic for a lot of these fights where you have 168-pound matchups. You know, I think uh, Fox is really trying to build the Caleb Plant um, David Benavidez fight, but you could still have intermediate fights leading up to that. You know, you could have Caleb Truax against one of them. You could still have Peter Quillen against one of them, potentially Alfredo Angulo. I mean, it, you know, those aren't the best fights, but you could still see some of those against, you know, Plant or David Vienna, David Benavidez on Showtime. Potentially, you could definitely see they have tons of 154s that they fights they could do. You could definitely see that on Showtime. Um, you know, so I I definitely would say Showtime, but that's based on a little bit of a, a leap of faith because, you know, they really did not have a great year this year. But I see how that would seem to fit into the economy where you aren't necessarily going to want to do that on a Fox card where it's generally the Fox cards have been one where they have had stars. It's one higher paid star against one lower paid star or, you know, they've also had you know, competitive fights, but, you know, neither guy getting super high paid. And I, I just see Showtime serving a purpose in that system. And ESPN is a little more muddled. Um, I have spoken. <laughs> uh, I'm going to okay. keep going with that gimmick for the rest no, of the No, I like episode. it. You just, just, just do it every episode. Um, okay, so with the th- top three elite middleweights, either moving up or seeming past it, Besides the obvious Charlo and Derevyanchenko, who should we look out for? Also, what does the future of the division look like? So, at middleweight, I don't have anyone on my radar. There's certainly guys that I've seen, like, on undercards. But, like, when you see these guys on undercards, especially these guys that are, like, really early, like, 6-0 and or something, usually the division that they're fighting in is not the one that they will wind up in. Um, typically, they're fighting at a higher weight class, and they ultimately wind up like at 154, if they're like fighting at 159 or 161 or something, I would assume that those guys usually fight a division below. Um, so I don't really see anybody right now who's stuck out to me. Um, possibly Jarrett Hurd uh, at 160, Jermel Charlo I can see at 160. I, I think a lot of the guys at 154 right now will wind up at 160. Um, of prospects, maybe John Beck, Alam Kanuli who was very good in the Olympics. He's fighting on top rank undercards right now. He looks good. Um, I, I'm not willing to, you know, put my house on it or anything like that, but he looks pretty good. But I, I, I don't know right now with middleweight. The division looks like it could go through some rapid turnover pretty quickly. Like, let's say Jamal Charlo moved up to 168. Um, that would, and obviously Golovkin is still there and will probably be there forever. But I, 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 I don't know that Golovkin's got a ton of time left as being considered elite. So I don't really know. The middleweight does seem like a division that could go dormant for a little while before some guys rise up who were not who aren't on anybody's radar right now. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I mean, just two other junior middleweights who will probably end up at 160 eventually, Charles Conwell and Israel Madrimov. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the clear answer to the, the question to me is just the current 154s. I mean, just there are so many PBC fighters at 154. They're, they're either going to be eventually a grow out of the division or run out of opponents at 154 and move up. So I, I think we're going to see good fights there. I mean, it's just it's so 
it's like saying who's the next Canelo. It's like you're not going to see the next Canelo at 160 just because they're at 160. I mean, Canelo's not a star because of what weight class he was in at one point in time, you know. So um, that's definitely going to be a rebuild in that division. But, you know, we'll I see. Mean, I mean, it, it could be Spence. Eventually, yeah. I mean, I think he's definitely said that. His trainer said that. Um, Crawford but, has said it. It could be Crawford. Crawford is talking about 160. Yeah, but I, I think because he doesn't really want to fight realistic. Patrick Teixeira, I don't want that smoke. But you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Everyone in the sport wants that smoke. Yeah, I, uh, I, 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 I want to see. Jaime Munguia um, moved out of 154 too soon because I would love to see Munguia versus Teixeira. If we if we were put together a list of the the, the fights you want to see most that are probably not going to happen, I would probably put that there. He totally would have stayed at 154 if he thought he could have had a valid fight against Teixeira. Like, there's there's no question. I mean, like, when he had that thing with Jesse Vargas where, like, <laughs> he didn't want to fight Jesse Vargas for the, you know, he wanted to fight a non-title fight uh, at 156. I mean, that was just crazy. Like, Teixeira's not a guy he'd need to fight at 156. Like, he would have he would have kept dieting and stayed at that division. Um, yeah, so I have spoken. Should the cruiserweight limit be moved back to 190 pounds? I don't think it would help and because I don't think people will care either way. So move it wh- wherever you want. It, it's not heavyweight and it's not light heavyweight. So people, I, I just think cruiserweight's an uphill battle. Yeah, it's like, it's just a weird, um, I mean, it's sort of, you said it right there by bringing up heavyweight. Because the problem already is, you know, heavyweight is, if you look at box rec, it's kind of like, the division, I mean, this is at an abstract point, but I'll, I'll get to where I'm going. But it's like, if you look at box rec and, and you look at the amount of fighters that are in each weight class, it's kind of shaped like a bell curve where you have like the, 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 the top division is 147 and then 140 and 154, you have less than that. And it just gets less and less as you get to the margins where it's kind of like 147 is kind of just the average size person in boxing. But then it spikes up at heavyweight. I mean, one, because it's unlimited, so it's everyone above 200 pounds. But it's also because at a certain point, it's just like anyone – if you go to like a club show, you'll see heavyweights who – definitely could be light heavyweights if they were in shape. It's just there's there's such a financial pull because on every level, heavyweight boxing is marketable. So um, that's why you really only see cruiserweights in you know, very specific circumstances because almost everyone who could fight a cruiserweight could still make more money even you know being a, a small heavyweight even if it were, were not the, the optical weight class for them, op- optical, optimal weight class for them. So, yeah, I mean, that said, I mean, there is definitely a problem where, like, you know, 175 to 200 is the biggest weight class jump in the sport. So it's, you know, very hard for light heavyweights to make. You end up with guys like Andrew Tabidi, who were just too small for cruiserweight, you know, who if there were 190 pound division, that probably wouldn't have been good for him. But he was too big for light heavyweight, too small for cruiserweight. But, you know, it's sort of like I'm reminded talking about some of the questions about lower weight classes, it's like, it's not really a popular enough division for it to really matter that much. The people who are good enough will end up at heavyweight eventually. Right. Um, let's move on. How does oversaturation of the market work on a practical level? I thought more boxing on TV and more comp- competition would be good for the consumer, but Espinoza disagreed. Um, I mean, we talked about this like a year ago, over a year ago. Um, I believe it was last summer we talked about this. And basically, the point I laid out was that um, more 
TV, more more TV time means a, a watering down of the fights because everyone's going to need opponents now. And you look at guys, just just we're just talking about the mainstream because there's ripple effects down all the way to the prospect level. But main of, or, well, I just touched on that now on the prospect stuff. Like Golden Boy famously this year, um, they, their, their cars were not showing up on BoxRec. And the reason for that was Golden Boy said that we don't want our cards to be on box rack because we're f- noticing that we're not able to find opponents or we're getting opponents and then they drop out because the other promoters are going and seeing these guys and then poaching them off of us by offering them more money so they're dropping out of their fights. So what that means is now there's a shortage because you have, we went from having, I don't know, maybe we were having like 50 or 60 cards a year um, televised cards, probably not even that actually. We were going from having maybe 40 cards that were televised prior and then now we're at the point where it's well over 100 televised cards a year in in the u.s and so everyone needs opponents and once you beat a guy that like really takes him out of the running for other fights um especially if he gets knocked out or something so now you need to grab guys from all over the place to be fresh opponents that an audience isn't going to say oh man i saw that guy already get knocked out three times this year um and then on the main event, very similarly, like there are guys who would otherwise be either undercard fighters or they would be the B side. And it's now they've been promoted. They got A side billing now. You know, Demetrius Sanjade is a good example of this. You know, I think people won't like this, but Demetrius Sanjade has no business headlining a card at this point. I think if you put this guy on Fox, you do pretty poorly. And that's not to say that he's not a good fighter. He doesn't deserve it. I, I don't think he's been promoted very well to the point that that dude should be a headliner. But he's now a headliner. And um, Tevin Farmer, well, actually, I don't think Tevin Farmer's headlined a card yet, actually, <laughs> which is actually pretty sad. But, um, you know, you, that that's what's happening. So you have cards because there's just so much, uh, there's so many dates where now you have, somebody's got to headline these cards. And so you have Emmanuel Navarrete headlining a card uh, in, a, in a soccer stadium in, in L.A. where they only sell what appear to be a couple hundred tickets. And then, and then you know, uh, uh, as far as like live events, like Lomachenko should have done far more ticket sales than he's done. But he barely does 5,000 in L.A. And it's like L.A.'s a boxing hotbed. But when you have in the span of two months, six cards or whatever it was, you know, people start to say, okay, well, there's six cards. I got to figure out where I want to spend my money because if I were to go to all of them, I would have no money. So that's where it's not good for the consumer because now you have a lot of boxing that you have at your disposal, but now it diminishes. So people talked about like, oh, they need to air undercards. You remember this, Tom, for the longest time. People were like, I, I can never see undercards. And Top Rank was showing their undercards on Top Rank TV, but people still complained about it. And then now we have it. But everyone does it. You have the PBC prelims. Um, Dazen basically shows the entire card. Top Rank is showing everything on ESPN+. Plus. So you have all of this boxing now available, and it kind of diminishes what it means because, you know, you can watch undercard fights all the time now. You don't want to spend all, you know, if all three networks show a card on a, on a weekend, a card is like six or seven hours. Well, now you have, what, 18 hours of boxing to watch? Now you're not going to watch that. So that's kind of how it is. Boxing is, I guess you could look at it like um, NFL versus MLB. NFL does crazy ratings that far surpass 
um, the MLB. Well, the difference is there's 16 NFL games in a season and there's 162 games in a baseball season. Um, you know, a, an NFL game, one game means significantly more than one baseball game because, you know, you got 161 more to go. So I, I think that's really why um, it's not so good for the consumer. Um, do you have any other points to make about that? Yeah, I, I have a, I have a different take. Um, so this is just about you know what does the dilution of the sport look like in practical terms, and I'll just speak of a positive, which is um, uh, to me the sport has never been more of a real sport. Um, something I've complained about a lot from when I got into it, you know, it's like, as I discussed here, it was in the neighborhood of 2003, 2004 was, it was the, the promoters had so much power and the sport was so diluted where, you know, it's, it's something we've talked about a lot that it was top rank had their formula where they would have the guys who they wanted to be stars and then they would develop opponents for them. You know, they would get, the opponents would get one or two fights on HBO. HBO would try to present them as a credible threat. They'd put them against the star. The star wins impressively, and then everyone moves on. And everyone's patting themselves on the back because, look, they built this formidable challenger. Well, you know, as a fan, you don't really know if the opponent who's brought in was that opponent really the number two or three in the division, or is that opponent really like number 50, and they just brought in number 500 for that opponent to face so they look good. I know I'm throwing out some numbers, but I, I think you guys can follow what I'm saying. And, you know, you have situations now with Jaime Munguia, for instance, and Dennis Hogan. Dennis Hogan got robbed against Jaime Munguia. And previously, you know, uh, that opponent would usually just disappear, speaking of HBO, and they, they really wouldn't have an outlet to get another fight. And you wouldn't really know how good that person is. You know, they might talk of them glowingly on commentary and say, oh, you know, this this was a good fighter. You know, we underestimated how good this guy was. Um, but then, you know, Dennis Hogan fights Jermall Charlo, and Jermall Charlo sends him to hell. So, you know, you get a little bit of a measuring stick between the different companies. And again, it, it just it starts to resemble more of a real sport in, the, in that sense of just, you know, you have a, a pool of a few hundred fighters in these divisions who are competing actively. And you it really does start to approximate some version of this sort of perpetual tournament bracket where you get an idea of who can beat who, who can look good. I mean, you still have occasionally fighters who will appear out of nowhere, but you know, we are getting to see this. Like, um, the guy who fought F.A. Jagba this weekend, um, who gave him some trouble, had fought a bunch of other guys. The guy who upset Carlos Balderas had just suffered his first loss to another prospect. So, you know, it, to me, I I like that. I mean, I still just, you know, I, I saw how bad it could be and how distorted the sport could be in the past. And to me, it's still, you know, that aspect of it is such an improvement. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what the person was asking about talking about the dilution and oversaturation, but it's obvious just to say, oh, you know, uh, we get a Tevin Farmer fight headlining it where we wouldn't have. Okay, great. You know, or as you said, <laughs> he hasn't quite made it to that level yet. But um, to me, still just more fights is still better. You know, it can be exhausting to follow the sport, but I, I still think it makes it more of an honest entity. Have you spoken? I have spoken. <laughs> okay. Um, and, I, and I think this is a, a topic that's going to come up a bit more when we do our 2020 uh, episode. So final question. Are you ready? Yes. Um, what do you predict to be the top grossing fight of 2020 to be? 
So this is a super interesting question because conventional wisdom would be some kind of Canelo fight. Uh, or, you know, people would sort of lie and say a Joshua fight, even though Joshua's revenue numbers never really approached Canelo's numbers. You know, Canelo was always number one, um, except, you know, except when uh, Mayweather has fought his sporadic fights over the last few years. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that we could definitely see some version of either a Spence uh, or a Pacquiao <laughs> or a Spence Pacquiao. Uh, or, you know, there's uh, a slim chance a Wilder Fury as well um, overtake a Canelo event this year. So I don't have a specific prediction, but I think that would be fascinating if that happened. And I think if Spence did fight Pacquiao, uh, that would be the top grossing card of the year. I'm not going to, you know, say as much as you because I think it's pretty simple. It'll definitely be a Canelo fight. And I think probably it'll be Callum Smith, possibly another New York fight. For Canelo, I think that's very likely going to be the highest grossing fight of 2020. Um, because even Canelo versus a mid-level opponent, it's still pretty lucrative. And now you add in uh, Callum Smith where you can bring in the UK people. Um, I do think that that would probably be the highest grossing fight of 2020. Yeah, again, I, I recognize that's the easy answer, but I think it's interesting we're actually reaching a point where it's a question. Yeah, I did think about it a little bit, which I probably wouldn't have in years past, uh, given Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao are either not active or not what they used to be. But I do think, yeah, I did have to think about that because it's like, well, okay, would Spence and Pacquiao reach this level? Would Spence and Crawford reach this level? Um, and then what combination of the heavyweights would get close? And I think it, they would get close, but I still think Canelo would um, be the the highest earning fight in 2020 but the 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 gap is closing and certainly doesn't help if canelo stays behind the paywall of uh of days that he could start to fade and lose his grip and if they take him overseas i think that would be um also huge have huge implications for who would overtake him uh in the u.s yeah, I mean, just to defend what I said a little bit, I mean, if we're just talking about Gates, I mean, Pacquiao, Pacquiao's Gates this year weren't really that far away from Canelo. It's not like Canelo is many multiples of Pacquiao's numbers. And, you know, I, I think it's I think Spence Pacquiao would be able to uh, outdo any uh, matchup that Canelo could uh, foreseeably make for next year. I, I just think... Um, a Canelo versus Callum Smith is going to do a lot closer to the Rocky Fielding numbers than uh, Canelo Golovkin numbers. Bold but prediction. I, ha I have spoken. <laughs> and we right. have spoken. We have spoken. That's it for uh, this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I think we went way over the time that I thought this would take. But uh, you guys put in a lot of questions. So if we get this many next time... Um, we'll probably break it into a couple of episodes. So thanks to everyone who submitted questions. Um, if you would like to submit questions, we will be posting another form where you can kind of just pop in your questions and then we'll record one of these uh, pretty soon after. I'm not quite sure when we'll we'll get a chance to do it. Um, definitely we'll, we'll have some time in January because January so far is looking fairly slow. Um, and by before we know it though, February will be here and we'll be back to having like two or three fights every single weekend. So thanks for listening. We will yeah. be back soon. Yeah. Love the mailbag. Get your questions in next time and uh, have a good new year and whatever remains of your boxing day.